Hello and welcome to The Intentional Clinician. I'm your host, Paul Krauss, Licensed Professional Counselor. In today's episode, I'm going to be meeting with Randy Webb. We are going to be discussing the idea of trauma-informed care and modern integrated therapy. Probably a lot of other things as well. So Randy Webb, uh, we've got a lot of credentials behind your name. We've got a master's degree, I believe, in linguistics. That's correct. A master's degree in counseling psychology. In counseling. Mm Mm-hmm. In counseling? Yeah. And uh, you're a licensed professional counselor. That's correct. And a licensed mental health counselor. That's true. Okay. You're also... Tell me about the facilitation you do in training. Well, I, I work as a facilitator and a trainer in of training or a trainer in training with uh, the MDR Humanitarian Assistance Program. Okay. Excellent. I think you also do some Ericksonian trainings as well. I do. I historically have done that in conjunction with any number of different organizations, but now do that really just all over the place, kind of as a needed basis in the community. Okay, excellent. And I also see um, you're also a learning consultant. What is that? That's my official title with the organization I work with full-time, and my job is to work helping the community, workforce development, help practitioners and clinicians from different disciplines, including physical health, So, and with the community members themselves. That's right. So you work with a large organization. It's a health court organization, and they manage a large area. I'm not sure if you're allowed to talk about them on the podcast of who exactly you're working for because you you'd be representing them, but it's a very large... I mean, how many members get care through you guys? Oh, tens of thousands of people, and it's... Uh, with the new contract coming out this year with the state's Medicaid program, we'll be really the managed care organization for Maricopa County, Gila County, and Pinal County. Okay, and for those listeners who don't know where that is, we're actually recording this interview here in central Phoenix and in Arizona, and uh, where I've lived for a long time, and now I'm kind of a, an early snowbird, and where Randy has lived for, how long have you lived here? Uh, altogether, uh, over 30 years now. Okay, so tell me, when did you first come to Arizona? I came out to Arizona in 1984 to go to graduate school in linguistics at the University of Arizona. Okay. Yeah. And then I've understood you got more schooling after that as well. Right. Well, if what happened is I had an opportunity. A, a number of things happened that led me to Tempe, and I was a doctoral student in Spanish-American literature. And I wasn't a very good doctoral student in Spanish-American literature. So I wouldn't stay in the library. So I had a director of graduate studies say, you know, Randy, uh, your students really like you. You're doing a great job of teaching Spanish. I'd grown, I'd grown up and had a lot of exposure to the Spanish language. And so my students were coming to me for advice all the time. And whenever they'd run into kind of problems, they would come to me. And the director of graduate studies noticed that. And he said, maybe you ought to take some classes uh, in social work, education, something like that. And I took a group dynamics class, and the rest is history. I've been involved in behavioral health ever since, and that was 1991. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And so then did you get your master's of counseling right after that? Right. That's when I did that, and haven't looked back. I've had all kinds of great experiences with that. So, yeah, it's been very rewarding. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, this is something I usually do in podcasts with interviews with people I know, is uh, how do we know each other? I think you and I may have first crossed paths. I, maybe it was with me training in the community, but I'm guessing we were both getting trained in EMDR back in 2011, I think it was then. Yeah, that was the second EMDR training through the Humanitarian Assistance 
project or program. Programs, yeah. And uh, we did meet there and in Mesa, and we went through that training together. But it was actually really funny because when I first came to Phoenix in 2008, you were the large organization that will remain nameless as trainer for um, a lot of classes, a lot of introduction to how to help people. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is better than some of the stuff I got in grad school. <laughs> And I'm in here with a bunch of people. A lot of people had bachelors. Some had masters um, because there was a lot of case managers involved. And I was working in the counseling department at a organization. And uh, I remember thinking, what? why aren't they teaching this stuff in grad school? I didn't learn half of this stuff. And it really helped me. So then I remember telling people, they're like, oh, we have to go to blank organization to get training. I said, just sign up for Randy's class. <laughs> and they're like, who's Randy? I'm like, I don't know, but he's cool. <laughs> and you should go to his class. And then that's how I, I remember I went to like, I think I went to all your classes. But I mean, it was like, you know, like 30 or 40 people in the classroom. I don't, at that time, you were meeting over in Tempe in some kind of disheveled buildings. I oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> that was a long time it ago. It was an old clinic. It was right. an old clinical building that had been converted to kind of a training center. Okay. Yeah. So that's how I first met you. And then we've kind of just crossed paths for the last 10 years. This is right. 2018 now. In various ways. And you know people I know, and I know people you know, and uh, social media and things like that. So, oh, absolutely. Right. And then, of course, the EMDR training, which was amazing. Oh, yeah. My second one, the first one, I think, was in 2009, and I didn't even get around to taking part two till 2011. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I really should have <laughs> done this earlier. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, and then you, when you grew up, um, I want to move into that, but I want to know a little bit more about you. Um, and you grew up kind of speaking Spanish in a school? Is that what it was? Right. What happened is that the I grew up in Atlanta, and... We happened to have an, all kinds of people who had moved to the area, whose families had moved there. Maybe they were refugees from other countries, and there was this glut of folks who spoke the language, had some teaching experience. Maybe they were relatives of the people who had, whose family members had actually moved to that part of the world. And somebody had the idea, hey, we have these folks, and would they be willing to teach these children in more than one language? And so from the time I was eight years old, whenever there was funding, you know, there were a lot of political things that would have influence over that. We, we, we could get instruction in both English and some other language, and I chose Spanish. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. And so I, I know that you speak Spanish just because I speak a, un poquito, but and I can mostly just overhear people's conversations and understand it because I don't remember any of the conjugation but <laughs> from all my six years of taking it. Right. But um, I remember that you would flip into Spanish language in, in the in the courses when it, afterwards when somebody would come up to you and ask you a question and, and somebody knew you spoke Spanish and just used, you went right into it. And I said, oh, my gosh, I didn't even know you spoke Spanish. But that's pretty fun. So I was curious, how is that um, – learning Spanish, how has that helped your career or your personal life or anything like that? I have a suspicion that it affected my brain development quite a bit. I, I have the suspicion that it gave me a lot of shades of gray about how to experience the world. There's something, I think there's something that really cool happens to a person when you get exposed to more than one way to ex express something, or maybe you, as a result of being exposed to language and the people who speak it and the many different varieties that they show up to describe things and, and describe their experiences, I think I think lends itself beautifully to developing all these, I, I might say shades of gray, but maybe shades of many colors about how to describe things and experience them. It's, I, I think it has a good effect. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. and, and, um, 
Yeah, I remember when I spoke Spanish a lot more, I had traveled to Spain and also Mexico, and I found it really, really fun to speak in Spanish, although mostly about elementary school type topics because of my vocabulary. But it was really interesting because I remember I kept thinking when I was learning Spanish, all their sentences are backwards is what I kept saying. <laughs> you know, It's backwards to me. And I actually think that's interesting because we have our way of speaking, which we think is, you know, we grew up here in, and it's one way, but then in 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 um, Spanish-speaking countries, they're they they say they're saying the same thing. They're just saying it slightly differently, and it's almost like a, a symbiosis to English. I almost I almost think that way. I'm not sure what that means, but that's what I noticed. I I would think that's very true. In fact, I find and I noticed this with folks who have been exposed to two or more languages is that they'll you might sometimes notice they'll start with one in the middle of the sentence being another. They weave all that together. They make the syntax work, and it's just fascinating. And it. I noticed that I might more borrow a word from Spanish, for example, that seems to convey some meaning, some nuance that maybe I wouldn't achieve in English. And and to be frank, I oftentimes get reminded after all these years of using both languages that there's a certain subtlety and nuance in both languages that I try to find in the other and don't always find. It's pretty interesting. It's an interesting experience. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I, I think that's <laughs> probably also lending to your clinical skills as well, just sort of seeing things from different angles. And like you said, many, maybe not even shades of gray, but also many uh, shades of color as well. I think so too. In fact, I think it may be when I was getting trained by the Ericksonians, by the Erickson Foundation, I have a suspicion that 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 quality, those qualities, the skill at doing that, that maybe I'd even taken to uh, for granted to some degree, I think, kind of helped me learn more about how Milton Erickson did what he did, the magic and the way he expressed things, the way he constructed what he was going to say, his intention, his, his strategy. I think that was one thing that I, I think it enhanced that experience a lot, actually. Excellent. Actually, I'm, I'm really excited that you brought up Erickson, because I know that we're going to get into this whole trauma-informed care when I kind of ask you about what you're doing now, but I, I would love to know a little bit more about um, your experience at the Erickson Institute. And I know that you've done Ericksonian hypnosis training, because I went to that, mm-hmm. and I've actually, you know, taken, I never went through the full Erickson training, but I've taken some of their scripts and some of their ideas and uh, utilized them in my practice, which was quite helpful. I should probably get the full training at some point. But could you tell us a little bit about your experience with the Erickson Institute and what that is? Well, the Milton H. Erickson, the Milton H. Erickson Foundations had a huge influence on, you could argue, on generations of helpers and, psychother- and among those psychotherapists. The experience I had with them was pretty remarkable. I had taken an ethics class at Arizona State University, and I don't know what got into me. I think I just had some exposure, a little bit of exposure, and this was back in graduate school, so this was the early 90s. I had seen Jeff Zeig, or Jeffrey Zeig, who's the director and founder of the Erickson Foundation, speak at ASU once, but there was something that happened. I, I, even to this day, I sometimes wonder that maybe Zeig had, you, had planted some sort of seed, <laughs> you know, it used some mm-hmm. beautiful technique with all of us in attendance, And I found myself quite suddenly just having this idea of I should study the ethics of hypnotherapy. So I did this course and I did this presentation and did some research about the ethics of hypnotherapy or clinical hypnosis. And that led me to the Erickson Foundation. And not long after that is when I started getting training with those guys. So I think that was 
I believe that's my working hypothesis as to how I got started. <laughs> okay. And that was only about 12 years after they had started the conference, which is known now as the Evolution of Psychotherapy. That's correct. 1980, yeah. was it? Uh, I think the first one or was 70, 85, 86, 85. Okay. actually. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. And then they also have the Brief Therapy Conference. And if you're out there and you're a clinician, I really recommend going to either of those. They probably have other ones too, but check out, the, it's called the Milton H. Erickson Foundation. Foundation. Yeah, so, check out their uh, webpage. Yeah. They're uh, excellent. Right, that would be uh, Erickson-Foundation.org. Oh, okay. I, I see it a lot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always checking so, to see what else is going on, and they do. Uh, they do a couples conference as well. Oh, of course, they do a couples and, one. Okay. And they, of course, they're the big sponsor. You know, they're big organization that is behind the Evolution of Psychotherapy Conference. It happens every, you know, three or four, sometimes five years. And these days, it seems like the last few have been in Anaheim, California, the convention center right across the street from Disneyland. So it's a it's a great venue yeah, for them I, to do that. I agree. I, I went to it um gee. I, I missed the last one, but I went a couple times ago and it was it was wonderful. It opened my eyes since I got to see all my heroes. I saw Hillman when he was still alive. That was right. amazing. That's beautiful. Um, but yeah, tell us a little bit more about Erickson, just a little bit more about your experience there. That would be excellent. Well, what happened to me, by the time, it didn't take long for me to get this idea that maybe Erickson was a magician. Mm-hmm. You know, he had this remarkable, Milton Erickson had this remarkable skill at observing people, uh, getting an idea as to some indications of their internal states, you know, how they think, how they feel, watching closely as how they behave. There are all kinds of stories about Milton Erickson, you know, uh, Bit of a legend, right? He had influenced and had taken influenced so many people. Had taken on so many students, right? Like Bill O'Hanlon and uh, Watslawick and Nardone and oh golly, Chloe Madanes and uh, Dan Short. I, I, there's just so many people, right? Stephen Gilligan. There are all these people who had worked with Erickson, watched him work, and my experience of him in seeing some film. Some demonstrations, of course, a lot of mm-hmm. things written. His scripts, like you mentioned earlier, just remarkable. His skill at, uh, who am I leaving out? Rossi, Ernest Rossi, Michael Yapko, a virtuoso yeah. okay. of these, these techniques, just remarkable. Yeah, Ernest Rossi and his wife, who are both geniuses. I oh, think. they're amazing. Yeah. Catherine, yeah, they're just from, I'm leaving out so many people. They're right. all just amazing in their own right. And what is so cool is that they, they, they watched Erickson work. Uh, they would they would see how he would seem to refine, like he was so wonderful at condensing what he was going to say, how he was going to make everything he said so efficient, serve more than one function. And he would deliver these things, and then he would be willing to change them on the fly. So there are all these stories, mm-hmm. many of them are probably apocryphal, about <laughs> how he did these you know, these miracles with people. Mm-hmm. And... and somehow influenced them into doing all kinds of things. So you could see his verbal communication, uh, rather, well, funny how I describe it, see, and see his nonverbal, hear his verbal communication, how he wove all that together just amazingly. And there are all kinds of, there are, like I say, there are all kinds of stories about him taking, for example, okay, he had an idea that he was going to meet with somebody, then he takes some data down about the person, and then he gets some other information, and he asks these questions, and he watches how the person behaves, and he hears how the person talks, and he gets a sense about the person's preferred senses. Well, that sounds really good. I see what you mean. Something smells fishy. Something doesn't smell mm-hmm. good here. Mm-hmm. And he would take all these things. And then weave them together, his experience of a person, 
weave them together in this highly, highly, highly condensed, highly efficient form of communication, what he was going to say, what he was going to show. And then he'd think about it and he'd condense it. He would take 10 pages of something and turn it to five and then turn five into two and then two into one. And then he would deliver this and then he would see how the person would react. And then... He would see how the person reacts, and he would change it on the fly. And one of the, so one of the many things that the foundation, in their training of us, would get across is, it's, it's important to be strategic. It's important to be intentional. Think about what you're looking for, and then be willing to change it. Absolutely, I love that. I love that. Yes, and I remember he used to use like I don't. Was this him that used the language where he would sort of say, um, "I would like you to not not stop smoking." Oh yeah. And he would just do these little wordplay tricks oh, and like really fun stuff. And he was, wasn't he, didn't he have polio or something as a child? Or? That's correct. He had uh, polio and then he had post-polio syndrome right. over the rest of his life. And there are all kinds of stories about how Erickson really was using these strategies and techniques to manage his own physical pain. It led him to these remarkable insights about how to manage his experiences, how to manage, how to influence how he was, how his organism was working. Just remarkable. Yeah, he's such a big figure because he didn't necessarily found a school, would you say, of of psychology, but he kind of did a lot of different things. He did hypnosis, he did kind of what we would call psychotherapy, right? Would you call it that? Absolutely. And he did a lot of other things, but he, he didn't really start one of these schools that became later like CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, or client-centered therapy, or these things you learn in graduate school. And so sometimes I feel like he gets left out, and then we go, oh yeah, well, Erickson too, you know, um, but he influenced so many people that have revolutionized the field, including Bill O'Hanlon and Jeffrey Zagat, and everyone you've been talking about, and it just wasn't a coherent school. So I almost feel like he does fit into this sort of modern integrated um, form of of therapy we're going to talk about, although without, you know, they didn't have all the information about trauma we have now. I couldn't agree more, Paul. I think, I think it's a really good insight. Uh, Jay Haley wrote in Uncommon Therapy and in other places too, Jay Haley, the strategic therapist, strategic family therapist, describes beautifully how Erickson's, maybe his greatest contribution, Zyg's probably, Jeff Zyg is probably most credited with promoting the idea that Erickson's idea of utilization, making use of whatever the person brings to the situation, indications of the person's values, motivations, indications of the person's culture, family culture, Mm. And these just beautiful, beautiful notions about making the most of, instead of lamenting what people lack, to really focus on what their strengths are, what mm-hmm. their motivations are, and to customize what we do to maximize that. It's just beautiful. It's just remarkable. And the life he lived, you could say, in a lot of ways, as Jeff Zeig has done such a beautiful job promoting Erickson's life, was how... Erickson could have lived, decided he was just going to perceive life as just suffering instead of, well, you know what? I've survived. I've survived this condition. I'm still alive. There are beautiful things I can do. You know, the rest of it is just wonderful. I can do all kinds of things. So, so many of the things coming out of the way he did that and influencing so many people who wound up, like you say, you know, from a solution-focused standpoint, a brief Mm -hmm. therapy standpoint, including the family, getting different perspectives as opposed to seeing people as, 
Well, they're going to present all these potential problems to more think in terms of, okay, well, that becomes more grist for the mill. Mm-hmm. And what are the strengths that I can build on? And what kind of ways can we build a collaboration that increases the chance that we're going to elicit or bring up the purpose of the communication is to bring up people's strengths, bring them to the service to be used. Right. And that you just said, I think, did you say collaboration? Is that what right. you said? Yeah. And I think that's the key point of a lot of what we're going to talk about is that nothing will work unless you collaborate with your with your client. And that um, it's kind of taking them through a rote model or workbook therapy, it won't work unless you have the connection, which that we've had, a, I've had a whole podcast on that, but <laughs> it's got to be collaborative. I mean, if you think about yourself going into a doctor's office if he talks to you kindly about your diet, or she, excuse me, about your diet or what options to do about this or that, you're going to be more apt to cooperate. But if they come down with the hammer and say, well, look at these problems, quit complaining, or you need to quit eating that food, you're, you're probably going to be a bit bristling. So I think Erickson not only could read people and all of that, I mean, and you've studied him more than I have, but he, he really was able to collaborate and take his ego out and put it somewhere, somewhere else where he wasn't um, feeling threatened by anything his much that his clients were bringing back at him. He would throw out a whole script. He would just go from whatever, and he would, uh, and he would be able to work with pretty much anybody. That's why I think he was a miracle worker because other therapists would have problems. I think because they were stuck in their perspective of what was going on instead of listening to the client and getting a more big, a more vast understanding of what was going on. That's a that's a beautiful point. That's exactly how I would describe it as he saw the relation well, it's interesting, Scott Miller, who has done so much to promote these ideas of the best predictor of good outcomes is the relationship. Oh, the yeah. best predictor of poor outcomes is the ego of the helper. Right. And how he studied with Erickson and I think Erickson there again did such a beautiful job of and I couldn't agree with you more. It was less about model. It was more about a way of building relationships and collaborations with people. When he watched how people were doing clinical hypnosis early in his career before he went and did the work he did, like in Michigan, for example, Mm -hmm. where he was watching how people were doing it, and he saw, hold a second, it seems like you're just really busy trying to stick ideas into people. Could it be that the ideal communication is one where the goal is to build that relationship or to build that collaboration and for me to elicit, leading to the notion that we oftentimes call as elicitation. So it's ironic. We were talking earlier about the two of us going through EMDR training, eye movement desensitization and <laughs> right. reprocessing. And it's pretty interesting because I think, and I call myself an Ericksonian, it's kind of funny because it's not really a school, so per se, like you were mentioning. It's not really right. a model. But there seems to be something that kind of unites Ericksonians, and I suspect that's what it is. It's interesting because the Mental Research Institute in California has historically had close ties with the Erickson Foundation. Well, isn't it kind of interesting? We Ericksonians will say, well, when Francine Shapiro was working with families and doing her thing with the Mental Research Institute, she was studying folks, doing all kinds of things, using different methods of doing things very efficiently, getting at the core, getting at people's strengths and values and internal resources, when she invented EMDR, when she was developing that, was in the context of doing something with an organization that we Ericksonians consider to be very close, have very close ties with the, with the Institute, with the, found, with the Institutes around the world, with the yes. foundation here in Phoenix. So it's kind of kind of interesting. And so 
when I take that kind of Ericksonian, for lack of a better term, this this approach, this way of thinking, or these ways of thinking and feeling, experiencing people, I look at EMDR. I remember the first time coming across, and I went, "It seems a bit intimidating because the protocol seems kind of technical. It seems like, it, in fact, my first experience was kind of rigid." Sure. Now, in retrospect. I look more at the sta- the standard protocol, the standard practices being kind more like kind of one of Erickson's scripts uh, that can be changed on yes. the fly in service of the relationship. Right, right. Oh, I like that. So that you actually went somewhere I wasn't going to go because I was actually thinking, I see the EMDR protocol as sort of a framework idea. Maybe I'm saying the same thing as you, like a framework of how to understand certain people because of the adaptive information processing model. That's lovely. But everybody's adaptation information processing model is different, A. And B, everybody's way that they process, I mean, well, there are some people that process the same, but almost everybody's way of processing is different. And so we have to get at the core. And so what I think trips up some EMDR therapists is they'll be doing the standard protocol and somebody will shut down or get too emotional or want to talk about something else or discontinue therapy or whatever and they're not um figuring out how that person is responding to having to go through um this type of therapy which is you know couldn't be very traumatic to go through and so i think that's where we have to use that eric's we'll use ericksonian that kind of um okay what is what is the reason what's the core what's going on here what can that person teach me about what's what their um experiences here so that I can use these tools, which are coming from the neuroscience, then interpersonal neurobiology and developmental psycho, uh, psychopathology, which we'll talk about kind of in, in, in the, in the uh, part where we're talking about the trauma-informed care. How can, we, how can we take these tools which are developed on that brain science and apply it to this person? Because not, they can't just fit in a mold of the protocol book. Agree. Not everyone's just going, oh, I, I fell down the stairs and the rest of my life was bliss. Right. I think it's a great way to describe it. I love the way you describe it. When I'm working with consultees who are learning or with trainees who are learning EMDR maybe for the first time, I approach them from that standpoint, my interpretation of of being Ericksonian about it, just to put a label on it, of, okay, so maybe you're learning the standard protocol. Maybe you're committing these things to memory. Maybe you're following the script, but for nothing else, to habituate the language, to habituate the way you do it, to habituate... Uh, or to get used to, to kind of create sure. pathways perhaps about, okay, here's that framework. But you're certainly not limited to it. And it's kind of ironic because in the first week, in the first weekend, or, or the first part, just to call sure. it something, because you have part so one, many people, sure. part one, you have so many people doing EMDR training, even connected to to the International Association. It's kind of funny, nowadays in training, we will tend to say, okay, we're a bit rigid, to use kind of Dan Siegel's terminology. We're a bit rigid to begin <laughs> mm-hmm. with, kind of black and white about it. And then when we get some indications that maybe if they've had some consultation, there's all that business about standardizing to a certain degree. It's kind of comical from an Ericksonian or from sure. Randy Webb's experience of right. Erickson. Is by the second weekend, Paul, kind of like where, and that's where, you know, you and I were getting that that's part two training in 2011. It's kind of funny that, that by then we're suggesting to them, even in training, okay, now, now that we have you kind of getting used to this a little bit, now let's remember how to be a good helper. Right. Yes, exactly. So almost, <laughs> I, I, these two words jumped into my head while you were saying that. Here's the science. Right. Now you can use the art. Exactly. 
Now you can apply the science through art, but you have to know the science and you have to be rigid and stick to this because you don't want to hurt people. Right. And you don't want to open people up who aren't ready for this. And we want to use all those skills of uh, stabilization and, um, you know, all these things to help. And then now you can open up and use your creativity now that you know um, how to, what this does for the brain and what this does for the person and this experience. So right. those are the two words that were jumping into my head. And just to, we'll just name drop further for people who are looking <laughs> for training. I did it, I think, I don't know, I should go look at how many hours this was, but I think it was like 20 or 30 hours with Sarah Jenkins and Kathleen Martin Wow. on complex dissociation. Wow. Impressive. And that was fun. And that was, and they kind of took some stuff they won't well i shouldn't say that they had things similar to internal family systems or ego state but it wasn't the same and it really helped me i actually now use that as my part of my phase two of EMDR because i feel then when people get an understanding of that then it's easier to introduce you know phase three identifying the trauma and phase four and the famous part oh that's lovely so i wanted to you know just for your i know you love training so oh yeah absolutely I, well, I, I think Sarah's remarkable. Yeah, yeah. that you're talking about some yeah, just beautiful, beautiful stuff that Sarah's doing. Yeah, oh, very yeah. impressive. Excellent. So um, I, I this kind of is a good segue because right now you are doing some tr- a lot of training, of course, like normal and you're a teacher, but you are now doing, are you doing the humanitarian assistance program yet? Or are you mm-hmm. for the EMDR training? Right. So the Humanitarian Assistance Program, the Trauma Response Network, has had me... Last year was a year that I was going through the process of becoming what is called a facilitator. There's an interesting kind of structure with the International Association, the the MDR Institute, with uh, the Humanitarian Assistance Program. So training is something that they do, right? And so there's this... The way it happens is you have a person who's the main trainer... Who presents things, you know, as you might recall, we you have this person who's presenting these things, going through, they, they called it a lecture, but it really is many things. It's question and answer, and it's a lot of things. And then in the afternoon, folks get a chance, clinicians get a chance to practice EMDR. And so I'm in that role of leading the practice session with a, a subset, a, a subgroup of the main class each time. So with the basic training. So, and then I'm in the process of being trained to be one of those main trainers. So there's a process for that too, where they they have us get some ideas about strategies and techniques of handling certain things in the morning sections and then leading the practices in the afternoon as well. So you're really a facilitator and you're doing that the first half of each day of the basic part one and part two training of leading that discussion and exposing some concepts and doing those things. And so then you're going to take that training once you become the main facilitator. Are you going to travel as well? They'll keep me traveling. I'm traveling a lot already. Okay. And they'll keep me traveling. I get to travel to Washington, D.C. and go through the training of the trainer process for part one. I'll get to go back in November for part two, and then there'll be people. That's how it works with the MDR training, right, Mm -hmm. is you'll – when you're becoming the facilitator, then you'll you observe, then get observed, observe, get observed, and the same thing with being a trainer. You observe, you get observed, observe, get observed, oh my and there's just there's this kind of it's an interesting kind of peer review that goes on. It's pretty interesting, very intense actually. Oh, that sounds fun. It sounds right up your alley since oh, I love it. <laughs> your main your main gig is a educational consultant. Oh, right? absolutely. And so I absolutely. think this sounds like fun. I would love to be in your class, but. Uh, 
Yeah, so well, who knows? Michigan, maybe I'll sit in. <laughs> who knows? Who knows? We travel all over the place. We go all over the place. I'm trying to get um, all of the clinicians I work with in Grand Rapids um, EMDR trained, um, and or at least somatic experiencing oh, trained as well, because oh, beautiful. there's a big need for that in uh, Michigan, and I'm going to try to possibly even do a little bit of um, getting involved with the Institute a little bit more. Um, Emdria, probably. I mean, I'm on the EMDR webpage if you look me up on Find a Clinician, but I'm trying to get involved to bring more training because I think there's, I've been just the more and more I've been a clinician for now over eight years, um, I've been getting this theory and it's, I, I don't think I'm the only one who has it, but I, I don't think I can articulate it as well as a scientist, but that the trauma, when somebody experiences trauma, no matter what age they're at, and and especially when they're a child and their brain's growing, there is this that that may be the impetus of why almost every diagnosis in the diagnostic and statistical manual um, becomes uh, presents itself, such as anxiety, dis- uh, general anxiety disorder, major depression, obviously post traumatic stress disorder, sure. bipolar disorder. That the beginnings of this now there's other genetic and biological and sociological components and personality components and all that that go into it, but perhaps this might have been. In a lot of cases, the tipping point that tipped people into right. what we would see, what they could go into their generalist doctor and they say, oh, you have generalized anxiety disorder, take this SSRI because that's uh, indicated in anxiety as well as depression, and I don't want to give you a benzodiazepine, so here you go. Right. Then that person goes and they function, but right. we haven't gotten to the roots. Right. And so I know this is your wheelhouse. I love this stuff. So that's I wonderful. wanted to get into a little <laughs> bit about your idea, which was uh, the trauma-informed care and uh, modern integrated therapy. I think you said 21st century integrated care and therapy. And I wanted to just throw a few things out and then let you kind of take over. So okay. the reason we know this, just for the listeners, is there has been an explosion in science, um, in research science. Um, I believe part of it started with the Adverse Child Experiences study, which I talked about in a previous podcast, I believe the episode right before this one, ACES study, um, which tracked people for a long time, but it did a short-term and long-term tracking, finding that the number and severity of adverse child experiences not only could cause trauma, which could lead to some type of uh, mental health diagnosis, but also was the impot- your the correlation was the more you had of these traumatic experiences and child this adverse child experiences, you had more um, indicators that you would be a smoker, that you would use drugs, that you would get pregnant um, when you were a teenager, that you would uh, be obese, that um, you would have diseases, heart diseases, that your diet would be... Um, you know, fast food and junk food. Um, there's way more to it, but it's a scientific study that's showing this. And so a lot of times people get shamed or in our society for not being, you know, it's a moral failing or they're, or, or maybe we slam them for being ignorant or we slam them for being obese or not having certain skills when actually what we're finding out from science is that their brains were actually altered and yes. perhaps irrever not not we we believe we can heal that but you know yes, in right. the, in the long term but in the short term their biology and their structure and their brain was actually changed in brain scans so that they actually have 
you know, they lack skills, but they actually also lack the ability to emotionally regulate and to do a lot of things that a lot of people take for granted who didn't have a lot of adverse child experiences, um, you know, and trauma. Uh, The reason we know that the three fields of science uh, that are exploding in this research that are I, I love it because it's like we've been doing this stuff in counseling for years. Right. And now what we're seeing with the research, and Scott Miller will be the first to probably say this and others is and Dan Siegel is, oh, look it. Science is confirming what counseling already knew. Now we just have a scientific study backing it. And we've had scientific studies backing counseling, but now it's even more important. So neuroscience, the study of how brain supports mental processes. Developmental psychopathology, how adverse experiences and trauma and other things influence the growing mind and brain of a child and they grow up to an adult and how do they act, how do they behave, what goes on. Interpersonal neurobiology, which I believe Dan Siegel and a bunch of other um, medical doctors and um, psychologists and neuroscientists and counselors have been working on. The research on how our behavior influences the biology of those around us and also the key to understanding our own behaviors and emotions, different things through understanding our own mind and brain, which I love the interpersonal neurobiology stuff, but it is intense. So if, if you're wondering what that is, I would recommend the pocket guide to interpersonal neurobiology Beautiful. to start with. Beautiful. And that's even intense because I bought a few other books <laughs> and I'll have to tell you, they're slow reads. Um, but I wanted to just jump off there because I know that you, this is this is your thing. So wherever you want to take it, I just was wanted to introduce that for our listeners so they know what we're talking about. Well, I appreciate that, Paul. That's yeah, it's wonderful. It's just, just remarkable. It's a really exciting time. The opportunity that I have to train in the community, whether it be foster parents or psychologists or psychiatrists or primary care physicians or medical students. I mean, my organization sends us out, our particular department, my full-time job, my main gig, is to travel throughout the community and Help people understand these things. And you could argue that trauma-informed care has become a beautiful justification for what gets called integrated care, whole person care, complete care. And it's just wonderful because it seems to have resulted in a number of ideas coming together. There's a beautiful confluence about ideas about the very things you were mentioning. How do human beings develop, right? What's happening to that person's nervous system. So it could be mm-hmm. prenatal, it could be interuterine, it can be in early life, we can be looking at infant mental health, we can be looking at primary care, you can, I mean, you have all these people doing the research and they're getting an idea as to what is it that's ultimately influencing that nervous system. So you could say that a common language is emerging that focuses, like you said, We're finding out that there's a beautiful scientific basis for these things, things that maybe professional helpers of many, or healers, helpers of many kinds, may consider to be, well, that's kind of commonsensical. That makes sense to me. There's a certain appeal to it, right? And now to have these data come in, in, this investigation, this research showing that justifies an integrated way of looking at people, this integrated way of treating the whole person, of helping the whole person, thinking about what helps that person grow up in an integrated way, well-connected internally, maximizing internal resources, reducing the influence of overwhelming experiences, taking into account relationship and attachment, taking into account how it shows up in the body. You know, the, like you mentioned, uh, the adverse childhood experiences studies. 
now have been done in 39 states and in nine countries. And you know, who knows how many, many thousands of people, maybe over 100,000 people, showing us the same kinds of things, the same kind of patterns, just like you mentioned. These health outcomes showing some sort of, as Nadine Burke Harris describes beautifully in her TED Talk of 2014, just beautiful, that pediatrician out of the Bay Area, Nadine Burke Harris, talks about. These health outcomes show up in a lot of different ways, right? Depending on how what the person's exposure to those adverse, you know, those adverse childhood experiences are in the first 18 years of life. It speaks to so many beautiful things because it, it's like we say with integrated care. We're just talking about the nervous system and everything attached to it. <laughs> right. Like, what, what do you need? You know, how much more do you need? We're just talking about the nervous system and everything attached to it. And there are these beautiful explanations, hypotheses, uh, hypotheses and theories about how that human organism is, is developing. And you, then you realize, as Dan Siegel says so beautifully, right, you know, the the mind uses the brain to mm-hmm. express itself, to grow itself. Or you'll hear Heidelie Sauls out of Harvard say, it's biological. The nervous system is like a wire that grows itself mm. based on the inputs it gets. Or you'll hear Jack Shonkoff out of, also out of Boston, out of, of, uh, out of Harvard also, saying things like, no, this is not just bad behavior. This is, this is the environment having a way of how the organism expresses itself. So it's just remarkable how we're seeing these things are all, all connected. It's all, it's, there's a confluence that, it, that suggests a kind of connections, a set of connections going on. It's like, a, it's like a metaphor for the nervous system itself and how it develops. How do things get expressed? So it gets us thinking about People may say the word trauma is getting overused. Maybe we're calling everything traumatic. Well, that's traumatic. Well, what do we mean by traumatic? That gets in there, right? Are we talking about stimulation, too much stimulation, too little stimulation? Is the person you know, living a life more like in solitary confinement? Or does it look more like Blade Runner 2049 where there's all this stimulation happening? What is it affecting that organism's development anywhere? And then you get people... You get people like Brian Weiss who talk about, you know, who uses clinical hypnosis quite a bit, is famous for that, talking about, or Roger Wilker out of Scotland, what happens if in this safe environment, so it speaks to what kind of environments are going to help us know the most about how that organism is developed, that whole, how that, how that organism shows up. Yes. Those guys are talking about, we let people get into a safe environment where there's no judgment. There's this mm. fundamental, radical acceptance like Marsha Linehan talks about. And then look what happens. It gives us a chance to find out more and more, like Erickson might do. I want to find out more and more about your values and motivations, indications of your culture. I want to know how your organism has come together. I want to see and experience how it expresses itself in its totality with the attitude of, well, guess what? Let's build this therapeutic relationship where we're going to collaborate. We're going to utilize everything you show up with in this safe, non-judgmental environment. We're going to, we're, and we're going to increase the chance that we make good use of your strengths and build on them. And we're not just going to th- focus on what you think about. And we're not just going to focus on what you feel. We're going to focus on how everything connected is expressing itself. We're going to focus on the yes. body. We're going to take all of it into account. 
I like that. I I, <laughs> I love how you're just there. There's no papers in front of Randy. For everyone listening, <laughs> that was all from his brain. So okay. Um, I I love all of that, and I just just to kind of reflect. I'm just going to reflect a little bit because you said a lot, and I had a lot of ideas. But I'm really glad you said all of it. Uh, the the body. Uh, I, I you know you know Joseph Campbell. Oh you? sure. Okay, so I was because I find myself not wanting to sit after sitting most of my day. Uh, so I've been listening to a lot of audio books. And so I've been listening to some Joseph Campbell books. And one of the things he was talking about from his study of um, early people, um, you know, and myth and origin stories was about how we don't give our body enough credit. He said the body is a secondary organism or I mean, I'm sorry, the brain is a secondary organism to the body because the body is the collection of the nervous system, which is exactly what you're talking about. So we, like you said, we're not, we're not just talking about the brain. We used to have this idea that everything flowed from up here in the brain in the head area, but the mind is, I don't know if Dan Siegel, if I'm saying this correctly, but he, the mind is kind of like what we believe is sort of, you know, facilitating the brain, which the brain is not just in your head, everyone. You have nervous system going all throughout your arms, all throughout your body, uh, uh, all throughout your uh, legs and feet. In fact, this is an, uh, I found this out from a recent article about um, this whole big thing they're having a revolution of the gut brain connection. Oh, it's lovely. Yeah. So that 95% of your serotonin is made in your stomach and your gut. Yeah. Not, it isn't in your brain. Right. So like, what are we even talking about? <laughs> right. So it, you're talking about this whole person care. It, it, it makes sense. And then to help people understand themselves, to understand, um, you know, that, you know, if we, if we leave ourselves to our own ego and are trying to solve everything all the time in this sort of energy, we're not listening to our body. And our body is intelligent. It has intuition if we sit and we listen. And currently, not to go totally macro on us, but in our current United States that we're living in, things have gotten a little bit faster in the past 10 years, I think, actually. I think it's fair, yeah. And uh, people are a little bit more stressed. They're working more hours. We have worse health, all this sort of thing. And part of it is we have this insane speed we're living at. No doubt about it. Um, And so how is that affecting the nervous system? But then how is that also not only affecting child development, but how is that also affecting our ability to listen to our intuition, which may be able to tell us things? And and so for a, a client who's depressed, they can't hear their intuition. They're hearing all sorts of negative messages from you know, something recycling through their mind, maybe from a trauma, from a bad experience, or just, um, you know, could be a number of things, low self-esteem, just, or like you said, the nervous system grows itself. So perhaps they're actually listening to a repetition of a negative thought that never was corrected. And now it's proliferating and throughout the nervous system. And that's when people who feel depressed, they feel heavy. They feel like a wet blanket's on them. They feel like they can't get out of bed. And people are like, what's wrong with you? Well, it's because you're not experiencing depression. You don't, it's not just in their mind. It's in the body. They used to say it's all in your mind. It's not. It's, it's all over your body. It's all there. So one of the things I found great about EMDR, which we discussed and hypnosis, even in some forms and mindfulness-based stress reduction therapy, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy is that we're getting in touch with the body and we're going back and forth between what we think, our thoughts that we hear, and our body, and then trying to listen for the body. And I've even 
done some stuff, which we'll, we won't get into. I don't want people to freak people out, but, or I will, I'll have people ask their body, like the part that's the part of their body that feels weird. I'll have them ask it questions or imagine colors or imagine animals. And people are looking at me weird. And I said, listen, this is just an imagination experiment. Right. This isn't voodoo. Just yeah. ask your body what it feels. And we get, yeah. and we do enough relaxation. They say, oh my gosh, well, it told me the answer. Well, it's you. It knew, you knew, right. but you were so stressed you were so in a heightened straight, uh, sense of stress that you became, uh, you know, a dualistic thinker for a moment right. and thought, I either need to solve this problem this way with brute force or this way by running away. And the problem wasn't solved by brute force and it wasn't solved by running away. It was solved by listening and breaking down to a deeper layer. And for somebody the other week, I can't, well, I can't quote them, but this is a gist of what they said when we did this activity. They said, oh my gosh, I just needed to show love. Oh, that's lovely. And I was like, whoa. Like yeah. that's the purest, that's outstanding. You know, thing. I, you know, and then this whole session, they're like, okay, you know what? I think we're done. I think I'm. The session's over a little early because I just I know what I need to do now. Oh, lovely. So it, <laughs> it, you know, that wasn't even EMDR. That was just you know using a, a hybrid of stuff I learned from you and from the Ericksonian hypnosis and just much other things. So I've been babbling on about my reflection. Uh, back to you but you know integrating the body and then how do we get you i love this you educate psychiatrists and doctors because one of the big things we're having trouble with in this integrated system and trauma-informed care is how do we get the doctors on board whose training did not include this it's interesting isn't it one of the things we're finding is we're trying to appeal to them as as we ericksonians learned that if you want to increase the chance that people think feel, sense, and or behave in new ways, you start with what's familiar. Would you believe, Paul, that oftentimes what we're finding is helping in those training events? Of course, we know in general, those of us who who do training professionally with adults, whether we're designing training or facilitating training face-to-face or however we're doing it, there's a great need to validate to validate. It's, it's almost like it goes back to attachment theory. Human beings who don't feel validated, who don't mm-hmm. feel safe, mm-hmm. don't tend to explore new stuff. Now, we're asking these people, like physicians, for example, who are used to, for a lot of reasons, have habituated, they, they're used to carrying a lot of responsibility, they're used to make perhaps the power, certain authority, autonomy, to some degree that comes with doing that work. And it's asking them to go out of their comfort zone. So we're mm. asking them to say, okay, you know, we want you to collaborate more. We want to share information more than ever in an integrated environment. So that means more than just cohabitating some sort of building or people having the access to the same electronic medical record. It means really sharing ideas with people in a collegial, collaborative way. In other words, that the relationship between primary care and their colleagues from other disciplines with other titles and other professions do this in such a way that kind of mimics the kind of relationship we think is ultimately going to be most empowering and reduce the influence of these adverse experiences we're talking about were the people who come for help. And so what we find is we validate. We validate mm. a lot about mm-hmm. what they know how to do. We, we normalize and respect their frustrations. And guess what we find out? They oftentimes describe that they f- don't believe, they don't feel. It's interesting because I'm going to talk about a felt belief. Sure, They can feel in their bodies a notion they like they feel it in their gut that or their guts i should say sure because they don't all have the same gut i mean i don't right. know maybe they do in some interesting <laughs> way that they're not building relationships with people mm. they feel like they've never felt more pressure than ever to produce to see the maximum number of people to get in get them out do the diagnosis 
even if even if they're not running across the ideas so much that they might get from their colleagues, like from Colin Ross out of Texas, who might say, like you were mentioning earlier, might go through the diagnostic manual or manuals and say, you know what, if that person didn't have these adverse childhood experiences, didn't have these things of violence and abuse and neglect and poverty and, and these symptoms show up and, and things show, you know, substance use in the home to this extent, we might not see these these things get expressed so much. These pathologies show up so much. They may not be aware of those things, but what they do say is that they l- lament that they don't believe they have an opportunity to mm. build very deep relationships with people. That they're just there essentially to do some sort of assessment, satisfy somebody's idea of what productivity is, which is an interesting concept in and of itself, isn't sure. it? <laughs> and and move on. And it, it and it gives them a. They describe feeling a little disconnected. Mm. They describe feeling they're carrying all this burden of responsibility, but they they may not have gotten an opportunity to share these ideas. So that's how we present it to them. Hey, look, there's this whole really cool thing out there. So now I will tell you, we're careful if we give training to primary care physicians, for example, about trauma informed care. Make no mistake, all the people who are talking at them or whose things we're citing. You know, Elizabeth Hudson, or it's going to be a Nadine Burke Harris, or it's going to be a Bessel van der Kolk, or it's going to be a Dan Siegel. They're all going to be people who relate to them somehow. Mm-hmm. They're familiar, mm-hmm. as we Ericksonian would say. Right. There's something familiar there for them, like family. Well, and that's so Bessel van der Kolk was a psychiatrist right. and an MD. And he, right. he's, I don't know if he still practices in that way, right. but he's written books and lectured and whatnot. And and then Dan Siegel is an MD, was a psychiatry at UC UCLA, I think, UCLA, right? Yeah. yeah. And he's still he's of course heading up immense amounts of research and collaboration in the interpersonal neurobiology. And I don't remember who the other two were that you said. Well, Elizabeth Hudson is best known in Wisconsin for mm-hmm. her work on trauma informed care. So there are people like Elizabeth Hudson, Kathy Cave, Roger Fallett, all of them essentially have been saying for a long time now. Sure. That. This integrated way of looking at people just makes sense. It it brings together what we know how to do, and it essentially says, this living in silos with our with our expertise about how to help people is not optimal. And it's especially when we're faced with making the most with fewer resources. Frankly, well, and yes, and that that's yeah, we're making the making the best of the fewer resources, and also the the fact that you know we won't go into a whole medical lecture, but nothing in your body, your body's organs don't function in a vacuum. Right. And your nervous system doesn't function in a vacuum. Nope. And your stomach and your digestive system, and I'm not a doctor at all, but I know this, and that's why, you know, we're trying to figure out how do things function together? How do things integrate? Because it's all connected. And obviously, if you break your leg, go to the emergency room, and you're going to have to get a specialist for that. But then, after that, where is the integ- is there integrated care? Is there physical therapy? Is there, um, you know, for instance, if you were in a motor accident, is there right. a, is there a counselor there to help you with possible trauma symptoms? Um, what are we doing for bone density? Right. What are we doing for um, pain? Are we giving you? Are we loading you up with opiates? Which we have a crisis right now. Exactly. Of opiate. Uh, Somebody goes in with something, gets 30 pills. They probably needed 12. I'm not the doctor, but I'm just saying, right. like, where right. where are we getting all these pills? Um, you know, what are we doing about pain and what kind of uh, pain management um, uh, programs are there? And um, so, I, you know, the cool thing is, you know, in, in one way, we've got all these great ideas 
kind of coming together and getting more and more momentum. And a lot of counselors and are learning about it, and doctors are learning about it, and uh, different different um, disciplines. However, we're still <laughs> we still have this very uh, this other system. And I, I think I liked how you were the, the, the ways things always have been done. The rote system, right. even if it's not in the textbook, this is the way they're doing it at the hospital. Right. And so, you know, how do we transform that? I, I like that you said we validate them. We, we're we not trying to say we're in a war with you. We want to collaborate with you. Exactly. We want you to do your best medicine. Absolutely. We want you to be able to help people and not feel like you just are making sure somebody doesn't kill themselves. So just give them this drug. Right. We And, and you're only going skin deep and you have 15 minutes. You know, we, we want to help you to use your tools because at times we're, we're going to need a quick fix when people are in a real pickle. Sure. Uh, so even especially, especially people that have been traumatized. We need, we need sometimes something to, uh, we need some, a bandage. We need something to help them so that the long-term therapies can take effect. And, um, and, and so then the other part about the brain is that the cool part we're learning in neurobiology and, and neuroscience is that the brain can generate new growth patterns, right? It can have, new ways of thinking in ways that we can't even fully comprehend yet. But for instance, one of the studies, there's multiple studies on this with mindfulness-based stress reduction. You know, these students would do 25 minutes a day for about 90 days. And what they found is in the scans, there's more gray matter in their brains. And of course, that means your resilience to stress is higher. Right. Um, so anyway, that's just my reflection, and I like how that how you're educating, and I uh, I wish more large behavioral health organizations <laughs> in different states would adopt the learning model because it really it's I feel not only is it the right thing to do, <laughs> which I believe right. it is, because the science is saying this, and we're still using science from the 70s in a lot of clinics, right, and that was. 40, how, how many years ago? Good gosh, you know, we're 50, talking 40 50 to 50 years, years ago, ago right? We're, and some of our hospitals and clinics are still using that science with maybe some new cool tools. Right. So where is, where is the, we have all the science, why aren't we implementing it? I understand that that's a huge question that no one can answer in this room, but, and I don't have no idea what the answer is, but if we can, if we educate, we're saving people time. Yes. We're saving money. Yes. We're, 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 we can then focus on prevention. Yes. Um, it, it just makes economic sense. It really does. We're thinking, I mean, we're realizing now one of the things that trauma-informed care, since Robert Onda and Vincent Felitti were doing their now famous studies, right, in 1997, 98 in Southern California, now, we're realizing now that we're seeing how we don't do a whole lot of prevention, you know, for the, one of the statistics that's come out of uh, Elizabeth Hudson's work and others who've done this at the federal level have been speaking about, they're estimating for every hundred dollars we spend trying to solve problems once they're already problems. And who knows what we're measuring as problems. It's not to mention all kinds of huge systemic problems related to delivery of healthcare, inclusion, systematic institutionalized trauma, historical trauma. I mean, we, we, who knows what the impact of those things are mm-hmm. uh, or the impacts of those things might be. It's remarkable. One of the notions that's come out that's thrown about quite a bit is for every $100 we spend trying to solve problems once they're problems, we're probably spending about a dollar in prevention. Now, that runs counter to everything we know about good prevention, mm-hmm. right? So it's opening up all kinds of avenues and opening channels. You could say that on a societal level, there are opportunities to open channels, to be vulnerable, to be embracing. It speaks to cultural competency. 
about how to include people, how to help them get access, to do it in respectful ways, to really be still long enough to hear what matters to them. It, it speaks to so many ways of redesigning these, these ways of helping people, being more like a village, being more collaborative, being respectful, being inclusive, going beyond tolerance and truly embracing people and all the diverse ways that they show up. It gives us an opportunity to do these things on a really big scale. And when we bring those things up in training, Paul, people will say, yikes, it just seems so big what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, Laura Vandernoot Lipsky in the Trauma Stewardship Initiative out of Seattle talks about, we're talking about the entire ecosystem here, people. She, I mean, her background was working in an emergency department in Seattle in, in Harborview Hospital, and she was watching people burn out. And it had her thinking about, how can I reduce the influence of, of what's happening to these people? Mm. You know, they're they're craving stopping their jobs and doing something a lot more simple. You know, they have craving. They go to Starbucks and get their coffee, and they think, I think I'd rather be working at Starbucks. That would be a lot easier. <laughs> My life would be a lot simpler. She makes an implication that, and she says it in different ways, she wants to help people remember why they're doing this, who you're talking about, because it's the right thing. Mm -hmm. It really appeals to me. Because it's humane. Because, as Bruce Perry might say, we're trying to get the prefrontal cortex back online. You know, we're trying to keep it open for business, as Bruce Perry says so beautifully. And he Mm -hmm. focuses on how children develop. And he's talking about now, as it relates to how we educate children, is it as, we, as it relates to how we're going to foster their development? How are we going to help the caregivers take good care of them? How are we going to reduce the effect of things that may have happened to people for generations? How are we going to do it? And so he talks about when he does his beautiful assessment system, the neurosequential model for caregivers, for educators, for clinicians, he's always talking about how can we maximize that human nervous system so that everything connected to it starts to become aligned and people start reaching their potential look at the power of that well we do we bring these things up in training and i go on like this in training right and people go it feels so big it feels Uh. so big like what can i possibly do and i say what's the best predictor of good outcomes the relationship go about the business of relating of attuning of honoring the wisdom of the body honor the wisdom of what you bring mind expresses in body mind expresses in brain it's all it's all getting expressed there be present tune in turn off the phone turn off the tv (laughs) you know the four t's like we'll tell with foster parents but we're telling the clinicians we're telling the helpers right you know thank goodness i had a mentor when i was in graduate school say randy if we waited for the world's healers to get the right credentials, the planet would go to hell in the handbasket. <laughs> Tune in. Be present. Those things that you hear all yeah. these folks talking about. Listen to the power of the body. Listen right. to the beliefs, the, the, the felt beliefs of people. You know, find out their truth. Be willing to listen to them. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, no, same I, idea. Like that. I like that because, well, there are systemic um, implications for how our, our entire society and planet functions together right and um that is a huge question that maybe can scare some people i think so um and and i think what it is we're just starting with the relationship and we're trying to honor you from where you're at right we're we're gonna meet you where you're at it's like 101 yep and so that means that if you grew up in a certain place in the united states from a certain religion that you're able to understand that that is where you grew up and that's 
valid and amazing and wonderful and beautiful. And if you come into my office, I'm going to honor that. But when somebody comes into your office, then you must honor from from them where from where they're at and see that as a, is this is this kind of what I'm saying? We're attuning yeah. to what's coming in right. because oftentimes in 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 certain places you can have all the right answers in the world for a client, but none of them are going to be valid unless you figure out what is their what's important for them. Right. You can give all them information. Here's how you do sleep hygiene. Here's how you do exercise. Here's how you quit smoking. Here's how you regulate your emotions. Da 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 da. da. Okay. I need to have that relationship. I need to attune to you to figure out what where is your leading edge? What do you want to change? And start right. with something small. Right. Because we, people don't want to be taken over. They want to have their autonomy. They want right. to they want to feel, you know, Right. And so then you're you're talking about all this openness and attunement and then how do we even as a system, you're right, like people people get into their into their careers, right? After all this school and all this right. student debt. We wish right. we didn't even talk about that. And they go, What am I doing? Right. I would rather be at a taco truck right. selling tacos right. at the state fair or something. Right. Like I would be so happy with this stress and this responsibility <laughs> and this pressure. And 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 what we're what what you're saying is opening up. That's scary to people, Randy. And so I, I know when the people that might be listening are like, okay, I'm all about opening up and trying right. to get out of the way of my ego and listen right. to my body. But you know, the ego is a dangerous tool if we don't realize that your thoughts, uh, you know, are just your thoughts. Right. I can't remember what's that quote. Your thoughts are not your. Your thoughts aren't always true. Our, our, our brain babbles on about everything all sure. the time. I always tell, you know, trying to normalize how the brain works. The brain's always chirping, unless right. we're like meditating in an ashram for days or whatever. But right. our brain's always chirping. I tell people, you know, you go stand on a bridge and you might have 45 to to 100 thoughts in the ne- in two minutes, some of which are like, beautiful, look at that beautiful highway under me. Right. And then, wait, what if I jumped off? Oh my gosh, what am I thinking about that? Or right. what if I push someone? Oh my gosh, that's terrible. We have all these, you know, our brain is constantly assessing things, especially we're, we're on a bridge. That's a little scary. It might bring our right. nervous system, but I don't know. Maybe you're, maybe you don't think those things on a bridge. I don't know, but everyone has these thoughts and to normalize that our brains have these thoughts and recognize, um, recognize the difference between thoughts, feelings, beliefs, cultural context we're just asking you to get to know yourself and if you start to know yourself you're going to be able to get to know others better there are a couple of things that come to mind as you say that paul it's beautiful that notion of, it really speaks to the beauty too of us as as helpers working on ourselves you know resolving things integrating things fostering connections within ourselves reducing the influence of where we had insecure attachments where we had suffering where we went through long periods of our basic, most basic needs going unmet. To the extent that we might do that may increase the chance that we have better, a wider, look at all the metaphors we use, right? Mm-hmm. The wider window of tolerance. We we do distress management or distress tolerance better. We So, so many beautiful notions come out of that. As you were talking, a couple of pieces of wisdom that I got from a couple of mentors came to mind. One of them well, actually, one wasn't a mentor at all. It was actually a person in a training who was very, very wise, very remarkable person. Had come to a number of trainings, like you did, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> like we crossed paths in so many different ways. Said the following to me one day. She said, I've kind of come to the conclusion at this place in my career. She had not been doing this work for very long. And she'd come to the following conclusion. It was beautiful. She said, I recognize I have a perfect human right to think whatever I think. And I have a perfect human right to feel whatever I feel. It could come in any form. 
mm-hmm. and I have an infinite number of things I can do about those, mm. including just observe them. Right. And I thought, wow, that's beautiful. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, that that's... That's, I love that because I always talk to people about your difference between response, reaction, and observation. But I think that I stole that from mindfulness-based stress reduction. That's lovely. And so, I mean, I was taking that from the training manual, but you can't do that unless you're calm. It's hard to know the difference between response and reaction unless you've calmed down. But I want you to keep going, but I, I just, I wanted to highlight that in a, in a kind of a clinical way because the last thing I'll say before I turn back over to you is, if you're out there and you're listening and this sounds scary to you, right. we're not asking you to change your belief system. No. We're not asking you to change where you grew up, what you believe, your truth, all of that. These are just, we're trying to learn more about the brain, the body, the nervous system, how we connect, what how, th- how what we experienced environmentally, socially, um, from if we had parents, what, what went on there, how that all impacted the way we express ourselves now. And in doing that, we want to help you learn the same thing. Right. So therefore, you just become the best version of yourself. That's what I was trying to say. That's a lovely... I love that. It's one of the things after the Erickson Foundation got through with us in the advanced training. After they'd given us all this stuff, all these stories about Erickson and all these demonstrations and these old films and Erickson doing his magic and walking up and shaking <laughs> someone's hand and a person's hand stays still and... He's doing all these miraculous things, right? It just is incredible. After they're done with us, three weeks of this training, and then when they're done with us, they say, okay, now, your task is to not be Erickson. (laughs) It's to be the best version of you. I love that. Utilize your gifts. Find out your many intelligences. Awaken your creativity. Integrate. What is that notion for me and McGilchrist, right? That idea of, the, the, of course, we have all these metaphors and ways of describing, and oftentimes they're simplistic, but there is a kind of beauty to them. When I was a consultee for Ana Gomez, the well-known, internationally famous expert on EMDR with children, I mean, she's remarkable. Whose office we're sitting right next to. Yes, right. It's literally right outside this door and just a few steps down the hall. Anna, when I was her consultee in EMDR, she had me reading all kinds of people, and one of them was Ian McGilchrist, mm-hmm. this neurologist out of Scotland. And his book, The Master and His Emissary, is just remarkable, where he's looking at world history and saying, the societies who understood that the right brain, he said, I'm oversimplifying it, but to give us kind of a, a paradigm to work with, a structure, a, a platform, those societies that were right brain, you know, recognize the right brain's a master. It creates for the love of creating. It just mm. creates. It's mm-hmm. art. It's just embodiment of art. And the left brain helps you put things in order. It, it, it applies syntax. It gives you categories. It gives you pigeonholes. It gives you a language and a sense. It, it gives you kind of a methodology to make things real. It helps you measure stuff. Mm. And he says any society that gets it backwards and thinks that we're here to count the grains of sand might lose track that there's an ocean right next to it. Right. You know, we, we might lose the forest for the trees. Well, the reason that comes to me right now is that it reminds me that all these methods, Scott Miller's pretty open about, you know, you think it's the approach, you think it's your platform, you think it's you think it's that. Really, while what this what you might take from it if you think that the relationship, the attunement, mm-hmm. the, the degree to which you in this beautiful, self-forgiving, self-honoring, self-actualizing, self-loving way model, you know, that prefrontal cortex, the so-called most human part of the brain, as is, is Bruce Perry says, is open for business. It is now 
attuning and prioritizing and modeling, creating priority and creating a sense of managing your impulse and managing stressors and gives you that distress tolerance and that beautiful window of tolerance and helps you mitigate hyperarousal and dissociation, helps you concentrate, helps you tune into other people and have mm. compassion as you're doing all that beautiful stuff. Sounds like a long list of things to master. Love it. <laughs> as you do all that stuff, then you create this relationship that has this quality that maybe the person seeking help has not gotten enough of in these days when mm -hmm. we're like we're all experiencing future shock. Things are you know, like Alvin Toffler predicted in 1970 with future shock. We our, our rate of change would accelerate so much. When are we making that connection? When are we attuning to human beings? When are we co-creating and resonating in such a way that that we can create stuff and 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 model both of those things that we're creating, and that is what we're we're about. We're creating relationship. We're creating things together. Yeah, we yeah we need the power to put things in order, and to and to make things real, and to create a syntax and a language and a methodology and a platform. Yes, that may be part of creating a sense of safety. Mm. To think that that's all we're doing, though. And we're not allowing for creation, exploration, mm. an opportunity for people to go out and get stimulated or express their sense of mission in the world. So I think about, I think about perhaps one of the greatest things we do in that relationship building is modeling the idea that we're here to create or we're here to express from a place of love or we're, we're here to remember who we really are. Mm. And so mm -hmm. while those things sound, I guess, very philosophical, maybe very abstract, I get reminded that what that looks like is, I, I, and I can see it when I see practitioners getting to that place where they're going, they're remembering that beautiful quality of being really of being present. And sure, they're 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 thinking about what they're going to do next, or they're thinking about what things going to you know, what they are being strategic, you know, thinking about why they're doing what they're doing, right? Being intentional, modeling that, and at the same time, perhaps not being too rigid or chaotic, as Dan Siegel would say, right. uh, managing to strike all these beautiful balances and, and to integrate. Here, well, we're using that term a lot, aren't we? Sure. Bringing all these elements together to for that to manifest in the relationship building. Which allows the people to, what would you say? We did all that. We're doing that. We're trying to help them do that. And Rem then they can, ex they could, what is this? Where do we do? Where do we go? The healing expressing I, living to their highest what, where do you feel like it's i going? think all, yeah i think all those apply and i think also about them remembering who they are at the core who they are some people will just my some of my clients will describe it as i think i remember what my soul is mm. they'll they'll say things cool things like that or they'll say i i feel more not only more connected with other people but i have a sense of what i'm really supposed to be doing or this is about being and maybe less of a human doing them, and more about being. Now, they describe it in a lot of ways. For example, like if the therapy's gone really well, like if I'm using EMDR, for example. Sure. And it's safe, it's gone really, really well. Like I've been working with one person, and, oh God, all the folks I work with just have remarkably painful things mm -hmm. happen to them where yes. their caregivers growing up weren't really available because they were, you know, they were easily getting triggered. They were dissociating all over the place. They were over and underreacting, you know, as, mm -hmm. as we describe in so many ways. And they had experiences, of course, and they had these other adverse childhood experiences, right, like we've been talking about. 
and these things can start very early. You know, they can start very early in oh, life, yeah. and they'll have a sense that they started before then. And what I notice, I see a pattern, is they'll describe things as, my senses are more clear. Mm. I see colors more vividly. Mm-hmm. I hear sounds more vividly. I smell more vividly with more nuance and more shades of gray and other colors. I, I taste more clearly i feel clarity i feel time differently i'm not waiting for the other shoe to drop i seem to be more accepting i think i think i deserved it so it shows up in their cognitions it shows up in their bodies they notice that they're they're feeling their bodies and it produces it produces a lot of inconvenient truths Mm. like they become aware you know i haven't been i haven't been eating well right you know i haven't why am I putting up with these relationships? Oh, yeah. Why have I been doing this job so long? Why, you know what? I realized the other day, why am I even listening to that music? I don't really like it. And where did I get that from? Why am I putting... Hold a second. I've been living in this neighborhood all this time. and I never liked it. <laughs> so they have all this beautiful clarity. Yes. It's wonderful. Yes. And then they get to this place of... And of course, we, we hope to see it in all these different methodologies of them having thoughts, you know, expressing thoughts like... I did the best I could. I always did. Yeah. Or it wasn't my fault. Right. I was just a kid. You know. Right. It shows up in a lot of ways. Oh, I love it. I, I love all of that. I love how you explained that. I've got so many ideas because you mentioned the soul. And oh, yeah. so then there is a loaded word depending on where people are from. But, <laughs> but you know, we can, we'll just use that word for context, which okay. is, you know, uh, well, not context, but we'll just use it for a placeholder, whatever you want to call it. Because sure. that, that could be our belief system about why we got into this and that um, we feel this deeper, deeper connection. And so that reminds me of the Jungian, oh, which yeah. we haven't mentioned, but the notion of holding on to the opposites. Right. That life is both difficult and beautiful. Right. And that, and that um, we've, both, we've all experienced uh, times of rigidity and times of chaos. Yeah. And we've experienced it as a culture and we've experienced it personally. And how do we live in the tension of the opposites, yeah. of the difficulties? Yeah. And um, also, especially for people going through trauma, they might they might have the, their worldview might have been shaped to only believe that things are pain uh cynicism is normal right everything's about money everything's about some sort of abuse some, right. everything's about how you look everything's about what you can buy or, or attain or everything's about just terrible awful poverty and war and, right. and and so so we're we're trying to help them find out who remember who they are and that yeah. that sense I think sometimes it's like an innocence, or I'm not trying to say innocence because that's loaded too, but just like when you're a kid and you're just like feeling that carefree feeling, running around, you don't have any bills to pay, right? You know, no one at school has bullied you yet. Maybe, maybe some of us experience that for five minutes of our life, right. somewhere around age five before you go to <laughs> yeah, preschool, and some right. kid hits you in the nose and calls you a name because <laughs> right. they saw their dad doing it. You know that that beautiful exuberance or that time you you know you you walk to the you you know you walk to some nature thing like a lake or a river or a stream or you walked into the desert or you walked to circle k here in phoenix and it was just the best time with your friends that beautiful feeling of being alive yeah and that that's and it's okay and why are we striving so hard right in the end you know we're all facing the same difficulties yeah and so can we can we what's that quote that says um be kind everyone you know is fighting a hard battle right and just embracing that we're all human we're all part of this weird system this mystery that we show up in 
and that, you know, everyone's got their opinions and trying to figure it out and, and people are, you know, pulling out their hair trying to figure it out. And people have, some people are sure they've got it figured out and that's fine. Right. That's fine. But how do I live? How do I live while I'm here? Right. How do I exist? And I think I'm hoping people are getting the sense that we not only have tools that are just, you know, EMDR is just getting started. There might be something else that shows up. Somatic oh, experiencing. Yeah. Integrating all of the therapies we've learned, integrating, you know, cognitive behavioral, integrating mindfulness, integrating the mind-body therapies, integrating with doctors, integrating with different practitioners. Absolutely. But learning from this, you're right, we should stop calling it trauma, but trauma-informed or just, I don't know, nervous system-informed, how the brain works, interpersonal neurobiology, and, and teaching people there is hope. You can change. You can you you can alter how your brain is structured. Absolutely. Even people with traumatic brain injuries can do this. Now they might need the, they might need more supports. They might need an environment around them. They may need, we all need an environment around us. We all need helpers around us. We all need a community of some type. Um, and that you know there there is a way to feel free again. So so sometimes I've had clients say that to me like oh my gosh I feel like this burden right I've been carrying. Yeah, it's just gone, and I, I don't. You're right. Like, everything's just different, and so there's, there's the funny part. I call it the healing crisis. Right. You, you heard it? I, oh, I don't absolutely. Know if I'm using that word right. I love it. The healing crisis is when somebody comes into therapy, and they're like, "Ah, this is the problem. This is the problem." So I work with them for a while, and all of a sudden they're like, "Wait a minute, I don't even care about that. that's not the problem." Right. Now I've discovered this is the problem. Right. This is like seven layers deep. Right. Doggone it. Why did you show me that? I was like, I didn't, I, I just was helping you, guiding you along. I didn't know that would come about. And then now I've got to make a big decision. But when they make that big decision, when they had the courage to make that big decision that right. they knew years ago, maybe they should have made, or right. I should have said should, never should on yourself. Sorry. <laughs> but they wish they would have made that decision years ago. Right. But when they finally make that decision, the freedom, Yes. The the and, and you know, this transcends all of these silly, ridiculous arguments we're getting into as people these days in, in our country and on social media. It just it just transcends it all. I think so too. And to just be able to look into somebody's eyes and be like, you know what? I know we disagree about whatever stupid law that we're arguing about, but I like you as a person and I think that's good that you have that opinion. I think it's beautiful. I'd, I I couldn't agree with you more. Long before I ever got interested in Erickson's work or got interested in EMDR, for that matter, I was really influenced a lot by the ideas of Irvin Yalom oh, and the idea of finding these universal curative, you know, he called them curative or therapeutic elements. Mm-hmm. But there's beautifully as existential of this notion of, you know, you get a group of people together and you get them safe enough, you get them to where they're typical interpersonal patterns, their beliefs, their motivations, how they perceive the world, their, the filters through which they see the world, they experience it, come to the surface and give us an opportunity to have some influence on, you know, together in a collaborative, creative way, get to this beautiful place that, again, a student brought up in a cultural competency class I was facilitating, said this beautiful thing about that, who said, and it was interesting because she was actually... From I think I may have told this story in other classes. You may have heard it before, but essentially saying something to the effect of, "I'm gonna, I'm not gonna treat anyone the same way." You know, we're all unique manifestations of all these things. You know, teach me how to best help you, so the next time I meet someone like you mm. who reminds me of you, I won't do it the same way. It was a person from a similar vein who said this in a cultural competency class. That that that, that reference here was actually to an assessment class of all oh, things. Oh, okay. <laughs> but this 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 came from a cultural competency class, maybe just a few years ago, maybe three or four years ago. I was terribly moved by this. She said, 
I think I will meditate on this. She said it in the middle of class. I thought she was asking a question. Mm-hmm. said, I think I'll meditate on this. May we all embrace our differences as we create, tune into what we have in common. Oh. May we discover what we have in common. And I went, hold it, would you say that again? <laughs> I want you to say it again right now. <laughs> I, I thought it was just wonderful. Now, see, it's funny. This is what happens, yeah. right? This is what happens. Our clients teach us how oh to be therapists. The, yes. the, our, the participants in the classes teach us how to do all kind of things, to be better teachers, I guess, or facilitators or whatever it is the world we're doing. Said, may we embrace our differences as we discover what we have in common. Oh my gosh, that is just profound. I think that should be on bumper stickers. Maybe I love she's got. It. That's a. But I mean, it's beautiful. I I I love it. Um, and that is, yeah, that hits just so deep. It's so many layers deep, and it's, and it dissolves so much unnecessary squabbling and right. and just it, it brings life into. Is this life an adventure and 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 discovery and creativity and despite the difficulties and and. Uh, suffering involved in living in a human body um just this gorgeous transcendent experience and we we if we you know we got to train our brains because it's not always a choice sometimes depression takes over but over time can we learn to live in a way and and maybe it's our unique way where we learn some things so we can integrate our our own minds and our own practices so we go about being an example of that I think it's where we may have the greatest power right. is by demonstrating as an example in the many ways that we can do it. And I get reminded. I get reminded, Paul, all the time. And it, fr- frankly, it brings me joy. I think it's the one reason why I keep, even though I get so busy and I'm trying to do so many things and mm-hmm. I'm training and I'm, I'm getting involved in so many projects and a design training and self-directed training, online training, I'm doing all kinds of things, as to why I keep doing psychotherapy is... And, and and I just get reminded how beautifully joyful it can be to watch people reclaim themselves, mm. to forgive themselves, to to discover that child again, and to get into those states of being like they were when they were just going about the business of being and creating. And the fiftieth time you do something is as fun as the first. Mm. And and I find that when we do therapy with children, and I see it with EMDR, but no doubt it's going to be true with somatic experiencing, I don't know, thought-filled therapy, brain spotting, whatever you're doing. One of the things I see with, chil- with children, and I know Anna's talked a lot about it, and, and folks who primarily would work with children would typically tell me in training, it's so fun because we do these things, we focus on the relationship, we open up the multiple channels for them to express their truths, so we're flexible, we model that beautiful balance of both providing safety and promoting their discoveries. I mean, like we ought to do with anyone with a nervous system, as we say, right? This only applies <laughs> to those with a nervous system. Right. And yet what they say is it seems, it's just remarkable. It doesn't take a whole lot to reduce the effect of the suffering they've had so the world goes back to being this fascinating, safe, and a curious and remarkable place, this miraculous, wondrous place again. With adults, there's this interesting crisis. As we go go around the business of reducing the influence in, of all that suffering or their, their adverse experiences, there, there's that beautiful notion. Sometimes my clients describe it. They dream about it. They'll mm. say, I'll have this experience like I'm tearing off. It's kind of like invasion of the body snatchers or something. Like they have this crusty exterior that's not really who they are. Mm. That they're tearing off, actually very painfully, 
dismantling, tearing off, breaking down, cracking, it's like a, falling like around. Like a metaphor them. of a metamorphosis yeah. coming out of a scaly body into yeah. a, a new body. Keep yeah, going. I just yeah, to give yeah. that picture to the listener. Yeah, I love it. Thank you. Yeah, this 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 metamorphosis of losing these these exterior bodies, these shells, armor, armor, if yeah. you like. Okay. You know that, that in some degrees protected them mm-hmm. from the world of discovering that vulnerability. Right? Brene Brown talks about that beautiful vulnerability. Well, you know they've never known it. They're not habituated to that, and the notion that they've constructed unconsciously in many different ways. I know there's so many hypotheses as to how that happens. You could argue that that you know they never were maladaptive. They adapted beautifully to systems that helped them create these scaly, crusty bodies on the exterior that are falling away. So they're having these dreams of them falling off. Mm. And then comes the multiple crises of, well, like I said earlier, the inconvenient truth. Like, well, hold a second. I don't know who I am. (laughs) (laughs) Who am I? Right. You know, I'm feeling, hold a second. Why don't I feel anxious? Hold a second. Why, Why do I have more energy? You know, what, what What does it mean to my relationships or my job or my life that I'm not who I thought I was? And I, I didn't, you know, and my addictions don't work as well as they used to. And now I'm more aware of how painful, how much pain that I lived with and what I put, you know. Mm, like all of a sudden, oh, I didn't realize my body was aching. Somebody said that exactly. to me. Somebody said, oh my gosh, right. I didn't realize that my whole back uh, was hurting this whole time. I didn't even realize that until the other week. Right, and all of a sudden, I'm like, "Oh my gosh, I need to stretch." Keep going. <laughs> yeah, exactly that, right? And it can be a bit. Of, it can be a remarkable period of disorientation for adults, mm-hmm. right? Even the way that they're used to describing themselves, the beliefs they have, the, the so many things that they believe. It, it, there's no limit to it. So all these things are falling off. They're discovering who they really are. Their sensing or senses are getting more acute. They're experiencing time differently. They experience their bodies very differently, and. This presents a kind of a funny little crisis. Not funny, maybe not little and not funny. Right. But it, pre- it presents a real problem where the children just go back to being curious and fascinated. Sure. And we actually give them, by doing these therapies, we find, contrary to popular belief, we find that when we do them well, we actually are providing them with a certain kind of inoculation or kind of protective factors. We're maximizing their internal resources. We're, and we're, we're sending, and off, frankly, I mean, you and I both know, we're oftentimes. They're going back to some pretty difficult situations, mm-hmm. you know, with their mm-hmm. families. And I know there's a common belief that maybe we're sending them back in with not enough protective factors. We're not really perhaps influencing very much the matrix, you know, whether they're in an out-of-home placement, living with foster parents, about to be adopted, or back into a home where there are adver- you know, potential for adverse experiences. I know there's a lot of concern about mm-hmm. that. I will tell you that one of the inconvenient truths may be coming out of all this work that we're doing in so many different ways and so many different levels it's leading to, I think, a greater awareness that we are, I think about those things that Dan Siegel and Jack Cornfield talk about. Like, why are we rushing to go to all these things? We're living very hurried lives. We're, we're trying to make more with less. We're, it's like we're in a race to have more experiences. That's one factor. And we're also realizing the degree to which we really are struggling to live as communities. We are mm-hmm. always struggling mm-hmm. to be there for each other, to, to be helpful for each other, to really live more like in a village, and and people are describing feeling disconnected. So I think those are inconvenient truths. And like Laura Vandenut Lipsky talks about, our planet is showing us signs of it. Like, mm-hmm. is this sustainable 
for us to continue living like this, being short-sighted, not seeing the bigger picture, denying the effects on the planet as itself as it were an organism. Mm -hmm. Is this sustainable, the way we're living? We're living very much like we're in in a crisis mode and like a chronic post-traumatic kind of response to things where we kind of overreact, underreact, we're kind of dissociating, kind of asleep. So anyway, the point of all that, that before I started babbling about all of that, is... <laughs> I liked all of that. I keep going. <laughs> it, is, it is fascinating, right? Is yeah. what, are, what kind of what kind of societies are we right. making? What kind of society do we want to live in? Right. What kind of society are we leaving our kids? Right. So a big thing is, um, one of the reasons I was going to say I think we do this work is because while we not, might not be able to to change the matrices of, of what's going on in that person's personal life in their school. If we help these kids heal, they may be able to change the right. matrix more, much more powerfully than we, we can from our therapist couch. Right. So, but if you, one of the things Hillman talks about, and I, I can't, I don't want to misquote Hillman, but he said something about, um, what I'm discovering is that there is not a big difference between who's coming into my office presenting with all these maladies and all these all these quote unquote problems in their life and the society itself, they're sort of blending together. What I'm wondering is how do we take, you know, not just one by one helping everybody and that's a good idea and, and educating other systems and medical and helping us have this new paradigm to help people heal and be their best self. But also how do we, how do we help the society heal from some of the almost psychopathology yes. going on in the greater society right. and almost in, in the world? Absolutely. Are we looking at the long view? Are right. we planting trees that the elders of the society will never know the shade of, but the children will? As a exactly. Greek proverb I, I misquoted, but and so yeah, it goes there, and then that is I feel like then and then I think some folks who haven't done some work or or on their on themselves in any way, I don't care what way they do it, they throw the brakes on right there and say, "What are you guys talking about? You're right. undermining our economic model." Right. And now you sound like a bunch of whatever label they want to throw right. on us. But really what we're discussing is we don't want so psychology doesn't want control. Right. We we're over that. That was that's like ego level one or something. Right. I don't know. We we don't want control. What we want is to be able to have people live a life where they're able to be happy and healthy in whatever way they define that. Yeah. And and to be able to not even happy, it's just how about content? Yeah. And 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 and, and minimize violence and destruction in our communities and minimize alcohol and drug abuse, um, which can cause so many problems and minimize the suffering. We're already suffering anyway. Exactly. But can we minimize the suffering? And part of that we have to question is how we're living from a systemic way. So in our, in our way, uh, you know, you're right. You know, we're, we're changing one person, trying to help one person at a time or for you, one hospital system at a time. Um, um, and that's where it starts because if the individual changes, and then collectively we say, wait, we do have a lot in common. What? Hey, let's all, uh, I don't know. I'm just making jokes, but like, just for I fun. Love it. Hey, America, let's reduce our work week to 32 hours. Cause most of the studies say after about 32 hours, most workers are just checking out and checking Facebook, you know, like, there you, I, go. I don't, you know, the studies of productivity. Right. And so what, why, why are we working so hard and we don't have time to enjoy our life till we retire and get our golf clubs out. And then you, and then I'm so sick. My body hurts. Exactly. I'm retired. Uh, so, uh, you know, so I, I know these are big questions that we don't have the answer to, but I think it starts, I think we do have the answer. It does start with 
how are we taking care of this body? I think so. How are we taking care of this nervous system? Right. How, how is my nervous system affecting those around me? And I know I've made mistakes. I made right. mistakes as a therapist. I made mistakes as a person Absolutely. where I hurt people and I caused pain and I regret it. But that was part of my learning experience. And now, you know, reversing that in this in this role, how can I minimize how can I minimize pain? How can I how can I influence the community in a way in the individual and the family system, but also the larger picture? I, I, I love the way you describe it, Paul. And I get reminded, for example, because I get that question. For example, if we're doing if we're facilitating training for foster parents, it's kind of interesting. We'll be working with foster, adoptive, and kinship folks. If folks mm-hmm. are considering adoption or maybe extended family who are taking care of these children who, for whatever reason, are not living with their biological parents. And they'll ask questions. They'll say, you're talking about all kinds of things. Tell me something I can really use, something I can take home tonight, something I can do with these children, because the children are easily triggered, so they over or underreact. They may or have they may have all kinds of diagnoses and developmental disability diagnoses right. and all kinds of and, things. And or, for just layman's terms, they may be throwing the remote control at your television, exactly. screaming, yelling, or laying in bed refusing to get out. Exactly. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean they're doing all kinds of things, mm-hmm. right? And so they're they're looking for some strategies and techniques to have a, a better influence on how those kids develop. But they just simply just want life to be less stressful for them. The kids, you know, I mean, it manifests in a lot of ways. And they ask questions and complain and do all kinds of things, right? They come and vent. They offer each other support. There are beautiful things happening in these classes. But they'll ask things like that. Like you're mentioning all kinds of things, Randy or, or Jerry Springer or whatever your name is. Cause <laughs> I look like the son of Jerry Springer and David uh, Letterman, right? <laughs> I wasn't going to mention that because I didn't want to embarrass you. But when I first met uh randy i did think he might have been jerry springer's brother and right. we will have a photo on the blog <laughs> on the blog post on healthforlifegr.com uh with us posing um and you can decide <laughs> fair enough yeah and so i tell people i'm the, I'm the son of jerry springer and david letterman oh that's right that's how you, yeah, you that's one of them david i do letterman. that but a few times yeah, right I forgot about that. that's and so they'll ask me these questions rather right? say it was springer or whatever your name was what can i use and i'll say well would you believe that I think the best single thing you could do is to model the following, that where there is self-love, everything else falls in place. Mm. That you might best model that in how you treat your body and how you talk about yourself and how you meditate and get mindful and eat well and exercise and get plenty of rest with what little time you have and the choices you make. And if you're having difficulty managing your impulses and you're noticing that you're having difficulty modeling uh, taking good care of your body and good and getting exercise and getting enough rest and spending a little time what you know dan siegel talks about that platter of good health right you know doing these things of the healthy mind platter the healthy mind platter Right. right to the extent that you're having trouble with these things then maybe you go and see somebody who can help reduce the influence of those things that may have happened to you. Because they find out oftentimes that one of the reasons they're showing up at this class, Paul, is they're getting their buttons pressed. They're getting mm-hmm. their own buttons pressed, right, about about working with these children or being a, a parental figure for these children who've had these adverse experiences. Right. And, and you know, for parents out there that are, they, I have lots of techniques and there's books, you know, when I work with parents about things you can do and blah, blah, blah. But one of the things I, I say to people is if you take time for yourself, time out, which is one of the things from the Healthy Mind Platter, just take a little time out. And, yeah. and uh, I gave someone the assignment. <laughs> oh, I gave someone the assignment recently to do, they had to do um, 
two hours of something completely unproductive. And they looked at me and they said, I don't like that. And I said, okay, I, I go, how about one hour? And they go, maybe. Because I, I make jokes. When I make assignments, they're never real assignments. I just say, I'm giving, if I gave you an assignment, what would you say? I'd say, I hate that idea. I'd say, okay, then you have no assignment. Wait, what are you going to tell me? Well, I don't want to give you an assignment. I don't want to tell you what to do. It's my little fun little game. I play. But anyway, they, they did it and they, they did their assignment and, they, and I gave them an A plus and they said, this was, they said, I felt so good. Oh, and, yeah. and, you know, and especially when you're a parent, I say to parents, have you taken any time for yourself at all? Right. Because if you take time for yourself to love yourself and you forgive yourself, your child is a sponge. Children are products of their environment. I mean, yeah, nature, nurture, blah, blah, blah. But we ha- there, it's a lot nurture. There's a lot of nurture going on. And they might have a genetic propensity for something, but, you know, epigenetics is telling us that it doesn't get switched on unless certain elements are in play, which we still don't know what those elements are. Exactly. But perhaps one of the elements could be you. So let's not make it you. Right. Let's make you the, the person they want to be like, not just because you're their parent, but because of the way you live. And I, I, something popped into my mind. I have to say this. So parents, if you just take a little bit of time, I'm talking one or two hours a week. I know you might be working two jobs, but just do something for yourself that you love. You're going to, your whole, your week is going to be so much better with your kid. Um, and just, they're going to, they're going to respond to how you're being in the world, how you're expressing your nervous system, how you're expressing your emotions. But one thing I want to, I want to remind you is, you know, you don't even, like you said, you don't even have to be a clinician to be doing this. No. I mean, how many of us in our life know somebody, I mean, maybe they're at Trader Joe's, maybe they're a hairstylist, maybe they're a janitor at your high school that just embodied this loving, non-judgmental, no ego in the game. Maybe they had a sense of humor. Maybe they didn't. It just, they just, they saw you for who you were. And we love them and we'll never forget them. I mean, I know you've got somebody in your life like that. And I've got, you know, oh, some people absolutely. in my life. But just, so many. you know them when you meet them. They're right. living it. And they yeah. are just, they don't, maybe they don't, maybe they have, maybe they were a therapist. Great. But they, you know, these are just people in our lives and people always remember that person. Yeah. And so and when we can get out of our own way and just right. try to be loving and accepting to others, no matter what they're going through, you can change people's lives. I mean, I remember a bus driver when I was 19 and he right. told me and he was, I don't even know if he has high school diploma. And he said to me, I, I think he was, he might've had, I think he was a Mexican descent. We were in Texas. And he said to me, life, life is the greatest teacher. And I always remember that. And he was like so nice to me. He talked to me for like three hours because I was on this long, um, what was it? One of those Greyhound bus rides. And I was kind of nervous. And so I sat at the front. Anyway, he told me me about his whole life. I don't remember his whole life. I just remember he said that to me. And he was really nice. Um, But anyway, we're we're getting close to the end here. I want to give you a chance to kind of take take it for the slam dunk. Sure, absolutely. Well, I I mean, I, I appreciate that, Paul. I get reminded... To the extent, like when I, whenever we have these training sessions and I bring that to the training with EMDR when we have an opportunity to to show the structure of EMDR, right, or whether we're doing a consultation, I get reminded, no matter how we're doing it, with one relationship at a time, maybe with multiple relationships at the same time to do this thing like you're talking about with the bus driver or different folks I've known who've had a huge influence on me, as well, it is by that kind of loving kindness, that risk of, of, of being vulnerable. Now, that's not to say that we're going to become symbiotic, you know, no. I, I, but by the same token, you know, I get it. It got described to me this way. And frankly, I don't even remember who told me this, like so many things, right? Mm-hmm. I don't even remember who told me this. 
But the person was showing me, was actually showing me. I don't even remember. Where was I when this person showed me this? <laughs> well, boy, that's really helpful reference. Thank you, Randy. But the way it worked was this guy was showing me. He said, yeah, I'm not, uh, we're not, we're not the same person, but we do come from the same source. And so he was showing me like if you throw like a, a Cheerio in a bowl of milk or a, or a pebble in a pond, an emanation, oh, the splash comes out, right? Yes. And the drops come out and the drops all come from the same origin. And each drop is not the same as the other drop, but they, they came from the same source and in some times, you can see they're still connected to the same source. So in a way, they are the same, but they have manifested as separate drops. And I said, wow, that is beautiful. He said, well, we're made of the same stuff, and we each have a unique path. And each one's perfect. And I thought, and that stuck with me. Now, it's wow. funny that I don't remember where I was or who the person who was right. who told me, like, how is it that I'm seeing this? I think, we're, I think it was... Um, a support group of some kind, maybe, where I had visited yeah. as kind of an observer or something. And he, he, he just got this idea to just show me this. He said, I need to tell you this. I went, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was like 25 or so. I was still studying linguistics. And I, right. that's, who knows all the influences that came together to, to, teach me that, to teach me that what we're doing in the helping professions, and no matter what our title is, I get reminded we're we're a bit like Erickson that way. We're it seems like we're magicians, and I love it when the when I tell the trainees, well, my or the foster parents or whoever it is with whom we're having these experiences. I find the best classes I facilitate. I'm not. I get the sense that I'm not really directing anything. I just seem to be kind of, I don't know, facilitating some sort of thing. We're always just kind of there creating something together. I think it seems to go the best when I take that attitude. I'm kind of the facilitator. Mm. I'm the facilitator. Right when you don't take the control. Right. You give up the control, but you do have some ideas of what you might want to relay. I love the way yeah. you say that. And that's how that's one of the lessons I took from Ericksonians is the notion in itself it's an embedded command. It's a form of suggestion. You can relax the expectation for control to gain power, to gain mm -hmm. influence. Mm -hmm. You know, would you settle for power? Well, yeah, I'll settle for power. <laughs> That notion that less can be more, or that you do it by your modeling. Right. I love the notion in those those training situations. We call them training, but there's really something else going. All kinds sure. of other things are happening, right? Human beings are getting together and exchanging ideas, right? And we're 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 exposing each other to just this beauty of creating things together. I love I love those experiences, and I get reminded that what's happening there is. We're we're practicing our magic, you know. I I I find that the I do better therapy, just to call it something, when I let that happen. I love it. Yes. No. You can keep going. I was oh, just agreeing. Okay. <laughs> I, I was saying that. Um, yeah. One of the things I I'm actually doing a, a a presentation on Wednesday called the Intentional Clinician. Also, the name of this podcast: Six Hours of Continuing Education, Downtown Phoenix. Here. Um, for a large behavioral health organization. And one of the things I developed from that was what I was trying to learn in my, what I was trying to implement in my own practice. So I took stuff from Miller. I've taken stuff from Scott Miller. I've taken stuff from Jack Cornfield. I've, you know, and melded all these sort of teachings together because one of the things I felt found that I helped me the most was if I had a, in the morning, I remembered I'm not in control. I'm not in control. It's not my agenda. It's not my agenda. Because, you know, you always want a framework. So I'll say, hey, you know, if you want to do EMDR on this next week, we can right. try that. But if I stick to that and I'm rigid, 
Right. The person's going to resist that. Right. I've got to bring in what you, what do you need? What do you right. want? And often it's something completely different than what I thought we might be covering. Right. And, and that is the best therapy. And I, I found so other days, maybe, I don't know, unconsciously I wasn't, I was stressed or something. And I tried to like implement and like teach him something or I don't know, do some exercise. Maybe they weren't feeling it. Those are the worst sessions I've had of therapy, or whatever <laughs> you want to call it, where I was like, you know what, let's what do you, you know, I'll catch myself. What do you, what do you want to work on? And I know we all have missed, you know, therapies and art and science blended. So, get reminded, yeah. but finding out what the, what's important to the client is, is most important. And it always boggles my mind. So I make a joke with, um, I made a joke with a client the other week about how like my brain will still assume things. Right. And I'll still assume in my brain, I'll, I won't listen to it very loudly. It's very, it's turned down. It's like AM radio, but it'll say something <laughs> like, well, if they could just figure out this, then this would help them with this. And this would help them with that. That's my, my like solution brain going on. Right. And I go, Making this and, and let me just tell you, cause he was, you know, he wanted, I was trying to level with him, say, I'm on your team. I'm on your, I said, guess what? I'm not, I'm wrong. 99.9% of the time. <laughs> and he laughs, he, he laughed really hard. And I said, well, it's true. So I still like make my assumptions, but I never know what's going to put the puzzle together for that person. I'm just trying to provide the guidance from what I've learned and also just listen and not impose my belief system. Um, and so when I, when I can do that and then, then I'm in the flow and then I'm, and then I'm honoring that person and I'm, and I'm not stepping on their autonomy and not, you know, but, and, and I always, you know, for motivation, everything always ask permission, right? Would it be okay with you if I taught you a few skills for coping? Right. I love that. No. Okay. There you go. Let's see, but yeah. I, uh, you know, the beginner therapist, Hey, I've got some skills for coping. You know, right. maybe they don't want that. That's so. something, that's something, two things come up about that. And it's one of the beautiful things I'm getting from, from Bruce Perry, who's training us in Arizona to work with foster parents using the neurosequential model. And, and Bruce Perry himself, I think, is a beautiful example of this balance of not letting his ego get in the way. I find him surprisingly approachable for a person who's accomplished so much, right, as a psychiatrist and a psychologist. It's mm-hmm. remarkable. And so there's something about that dance that we do, and he models it really well. But one of the things I'm taking from him, besides that, just watching how he shows up as a person, is this beautiful quality of being willing to be strategic and to be intentional and think about, okay, now this is what, based on what I've gathered from this person along the way and always adding new data about what I, how I'm experiencing this person and what seems to matter to this person and and how that evolves in our time together because it's so there's so many moving parts it's so beautifully dynamic to be willing to to be willing to have a framework like okay like a starting point but i need not be overly attached to it i don't have to be rigid about it i don't have to be chaotic i i i can i can model all these things i can be flexible i can provide a sense of safety for me and the person there's all that fun stuff going on and there's also that beautiful quality about being willing to, to change it along the way to do that and always taking into account whatever it is that the person, like you said, you know, so beautifully is being willing to do that. The Ericksonians had a way to exercise this. Parenthetically, I will tell all of you, if you ever get a chance, Paul, you mentioned it earlier with the Erickson Foundation, you know, all those conferences they do, the couples and the brief solution-focused stuff, the evolution of psychotherapy, you know, you get to see all these people, right, and all these other practitioners and healers of many traditions coming together. Their intensive trainings happen several times during the year, and they're typically here in Phoenix. 
Well, one of the things that they do so well in that training is that there's so they give you a little bit conceptually, kind of show you some concepts, show you some demonstrations. And then it has this beautiful quality of you practicing things with these other folks who come from all over the planet, you know, to, to learn about these methods, right? Clinical hypnosis, but a lot of other things get thrown in there. One exercise they do that's so beautiful is that they would have us when, while we're practicing with our colleagues, we might come up with, okay, based on our interview of a colleague, what the person at any given time wants to focus on. You know, whatever it is the person wants to work on. And so then we're given the assignment of writing this script as to what we're going to say and what we're going to do like Erickson might. So with a lot of, you know, we're going to write this script and exactly what we're going to say and how we're going to say it and, you know, the tone of our voices right. and what we're going to do non-verbally and all that fun stuff. We're going to write all that out, right? Right. And then they have us practice. And then we find out oftentimes, like you said beautifully, you know, we're still kind of missing something. Our attunement's not real good. Like we're, it's like we... We tried to base the script on our, our assessment of what's going on with the person, and yet we don't seem to be quite connected, and what we're offering in the script doesn't seem to quite resonate for the person and quite fit very well. Okay, so then there's a piece of, okay, now let's, based on the feedback you got, go refining your script. And we keep finding out that it's, we're never, <laughs> it's just an approximation, right? And right. so... Dan Short, for example, wrote this book about strategy of partitioning, strategy of progression, hope and resilience, a beautiful book of how you might think strategically about what you're doing. And then they did something really cool, Paul. Then they said, okay, we'd like you to ad lib it. Just ad lib it. You're assessing what's going on with the person, and you're just going to, I don't know, tune into... Improv. You're going to, yeah, it's going to be all improvisation. Mm -hmm. You're just going to improvise. And we find that, okay, so sometimes that doesn't match either. And then they had us look at the quality, the nature of how we were improvising. Okay, so what is it that, take a look, write down what you, what you came up for you as you were improvising. What was fascinating is we found out in this rather experiential way, because experience, you know, is such a, is right. experience, Leo's life's a great teacher, right? right? Here's what we found out. If you go with a script, you're going to wind up making nuances. You're going to wind up adding nuances to that platform, that that. That approach, whatever that is, you're gonna you're gonna add nuance to it to better fit the person. And guess what? If you ad lib, you're gonna create a script. <laughs> <laughs> That's how they did Talk it. Talk about the opposites. Yes, I love that. It, you know, it's funny because in the training, uh, you know, in the training, you know, people do the powerpoints, and I used to be very rigid because I was afraid I wasn't gonna get the information across. And then it, I wrote this whole script. I wrote I don't know how many pages it is. It must be 41 pages for my training. Yeah. And and now I. I, I don't read the script. I never did. Like, but it was for me and my right. ner my nervous my nervous system because I was anxious about presenting the information, and making sure they got the empirical information, blah blah blah. But then once once I was there, I was like, this doesn't. You know, there was the improv. There's the jazz player in me. I had to right. say, this doesn't work. I've got to say this in a simple way or a funny way or tell a story and all these stories. And I'm like, man, I really need to like record this because. I, you know, you know how um, speakers develop scripts, you know, I only do this training a couple times a year. So I don't, I just, I don't know what I'm going to say on Wednesday. I know the information is there. Right. And I have like one or two things I'm going to read, but the rest of it is just what we've been kind of ad-libbing on. And then there's different topics throughout it. I have a bit more structure because a podcast, you don't have to have much structure, but um, it's funny. So there's the opposites. There we go. Back and forth. If you have a script, you're going to, you're going to want to improv <laughs> And if you and if you improv, you're going to make a script because you need, and that's the middle, the right. middle way. The middle way. It's a beautiful integration, and it reminds me of all those things we create, all those, right, all the 
the dialectics of this thing is so beautiful, right? We keep generating these these opposites to contend with, right? And we get faced with what winds up becoming, winds up happening, becomes an integration of all these things. We wind up creating new ways, just like we've always been creating new kinds of humans. We've been creating new forms of music and art. We always we're always creating. And I get I think it's just a beautiful enterprise the way that we're always creating new forms. We're always finding these middle ways. We're integrating, pulling these apparently disparate elements together. And if when we do them intentionally, it's remarkable, right? We do them strategically, intentionally. And with this beautiful paradox of, well, and I don't have to be overly attached to that. <laughs> I got to get rid of attachment. Yeah, what they say, uh, somebody said, um, take everything seriously and hold it all lightly. Did I say that right? Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. Take it all seriously and hold it all lightly. Yeah. So it's all important and it's all beautiful and it's all there, but you, we also have to we have to be careful of our attachment to it. And so you see that in music, you see that in art, you see that in therapy. I think so. and I'm sure I'm sure you see it in business and other things that I'm not. I think so. That aren't my wheelhouse. But for instance, yeah, I can't even. I had I had more thoughts there, but I, I love how how you said that. Take it away. I I'm, <laughs> I lost my train of thought there for a second. Yeah, it'll come back. The moment I start throwing some other ideas, the train it's will come, come back. back. Yeah. That's how it works. That's how it works. <laughs> And um, no, I, I love all of this this discussion. And oh, humans are creative. We're creative beings. And when we can help somebody recover from a trauma, a loss, difficulty, a, a season, an illness, whatever's going on, that creativity returns to the thing that they are meant to do. And I, I, I wonder about, um, oh, you can take this with any population, but just right now working with the younger population who... Um, they play video games all the time. And it was interesting because I had this judgmental view of video games. And I still do. But <laughs> some of the video game, because I feel like you're not, you're, you know, you're not imagining, you're not yeah. creating. But in some <laughs> of the video games, I feel like people told me, you know, I feel depressed after playing for hours. Right. That's interesting. Because they weren't creating. But then in other people told me, you know what? I had a great time playing the video game because I connected with my friends over the um, microphone and we all had a good time and we all live in different cities now and it was the most fun I had all week and it's making me realize I don't I need more friends where I live now and it was like that awakening so right. well, look at me judging the video game and then another person told me you know I was make, playing this video game and what I realized is that in this video game it lets you create different things and I need to I learned that I need to I need to make stuff in real life too and so I think that you know we get fixated on these different ideas you know I, I my brain was saying video games are a waste of time you know probably because in my youth I didn't play many but I felt like I was wasting my time because I would rather do art I'd rather do music or something right but um but that's not that's my path right their path may be video games and certain people they they make it their their path but then how does that help them contribute any you know so it's like that whole opposite thing i don't know if that made any sense but people are talking about the epidemic of video games i guess is why i brought that up well I, I can see how we we may collectively get triggered ourselves because uh, and what came to mind as you were talking about that paul is that notion that i kate took from patrick carnes back in the 1980s about when he was working with sex offenders out in wickenburg out in the meadows mm -hmm. here in arizona the notion of well guess what you know these folks are presenting with sexual they're getting, you know, they're they're getting sexual offenses. They're getting into legal problems, and here he is. He's faced with treatment with folks who have paraphilias and are obsessed with pornography, or they're acting out frauderism and voyeurism, and they're sure. doing these things. And he made a really good case, I thought, of describing how their patterns 
really look like any other form of addiction. Mm-hmm. You know, imposing mm-hmm. that notion that it takes more of that excitation, stimulation, some of the risks, some of the dangers. For and, and in many ways, he saw that they were kind of chasing the original high, really showing showing us indications, offering us a different way of thinking of addiction. It was really not not the thing outside of you so much as the effects of inside of you, mm. right? The experiences, what's happening physiologically, you could describe it perhaps, that they're showing a pattern of addiction. But the reason I bring that up is that I get reminded of, if people now talk about from a more integrated standpoint, you know, like, what does that mean? To do more effective trauma-informed from a perspective of the whole person, the development of the organism, the uh, the organism, the adverse experiences that have influenced how that person's expressing neurologically. What is the latest version of that person showing up? You know, as, as if live for the big photocopier of the original blueprint. So all of that around epigenetics you mentioned. What is if you know taking all that into account as well as well as we know how? How do you treat a person who's showing up with an, an addiction? You know, with air quotes. Uh, with video games, for example, well, you could argue that it's just a manifestation, another manifestation of the organism. It's not so much what is wrong with the person, but rather that big paradigm shift in trauma-informed care is what's happened to the person, and to what degree is the organism self-regulating or attempting mm. to self-regulate mm-hmm. or to compensate. To adapt. Yep. To adapt. Mm-hmm. And so I get reminded that maybe if you, if you take all the, I guess, if you apply what we've been talking about, as it relates to treating anyone, including anyone who might have any number of different apparently addictive or problematic behaviors that way, that it would be with this place of radical acceptance, non-judgment, being willing to be flexible enough to consider that it serves, right? I mean, I don't want to play necessarily Dr. Phil, well, how's that working for you? Right, you know, or anything, right. not necessarily. But maybe maybe a piece of that does apply here of, without judgment, what is it you get from playing video games? Again, Absolutely. meet the person where the person is. And that's, you know? and that's what I've learned to do is I have to take my personal opinions out of it. And my personal opinions are usually about some big global issue wrong because it's all applied to a different per- – it's it's all applied differently to everybody. I think and it's And so fair. exactly uh, for the clinicians out there, we aren't trying to just beat something out of somebody. we got to find out what why is it important to them. That's what what we, is it doing for them? Right. That's what we Ericksonians say is – Elicit only the power struggles. Even Scott Miller won't even call it resistance. Erickson used to call it resistance, right. but it's trying to instead of trying to beat it out of them to consider, okay, elicit or generate only the power struggles whose energy you're going to utilize, whose whose energy you're going to channel, kind of like a keto. A keto where you pull the person, you yeah. use their use their center of gravity. Is that yep. what you're talking about? Exactly. I mean, mm-hmm. and the goal the goal becomes again that notion of. Let's find out what it's doing for you. Let me better meet you where you are. Let me better find out what what kind of function that serves for you. And while you're, as Bruce Perry would say, as your prefrontal cortex may not be entirely open for business and you're just reacting like you were talking about earlier. Sure. Well, let me make that more grist for the mill too. We can utilize, as we Ericksonians say, we're going to utilize whatever the person brings. And then I'm going to customize what I do in this collaboration with you to create some sort of relationship by which the greatest version of yourself emerges, if it's the true self or whatever you call that. I love that. And <laughs> I think that we're probably going to have to record a part two. Okay, um, I'm open to that. So because we're running, I'm running a bit low on, on, on the time today, but I think that was a very good last summary because I brought up that issue and then we discussed how we contextualize it. 
Yeah. And I heard Eric Sodi in there. I heard a little motivational interviewing. Oh, right. You know, the pros of what the risky behavior or the or the difficult, uh, quote unquote, addiction is. Right. Uh, I loved all of that. I think that's a good summary. Uh, I, I'm not going to repeat the summary. Everyone just heard the summary. So <laughs> I, I, I think that's a good summary of our work. And I really, I want to thank you for coming on the show, thank Randy. You. And um, I loved all the quotes that you just pulled out of thin air. Oh, your, thank you. <laughs> they're probably in your brain, but... Um, <laughs> I had I had thought of like bringing in some quotes, you know. That that was my script. I brought in a few quotes, <laughs> right, right. And I was like, you know what? These quotes have nothing on what Randy's thrown down. <laughs> so I threw that part of the show out. I improved on that. And so um, I wanted to say, so you know, maybe bigger organizations are listening. I don't know. So how do how do people get a hold of Randy Webb if they want to have him come teach their clinic or their hospital or their integrated giant behavioral health? Si- system in a different state or for i know that you still take a few people on in therapy uh-huh, sure uh, but i know that you have no website right i've uh, never needed can you believe it and i know it sounds a little foolish to say you don't need one no well, doubt i'd make good use of it but well you, you know you have a you have a, a regular quote-unquote job right where you're right. not just an entrepreneur in right. your learning consultant capacity, so right. it makes sense. Well, no, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's great that you don't have a website. I, I, <laughs> I, I think it's awesome because. Uh, I don't know. I just it it makes you the the person you are, and and you know everyone know people know who you are here in in the Phoenix area, but um, I think it's I, I never change. Don't get a website, you know. Understood. Do, I don't know, but if people Understood. want to get a hold of you, how right. would they how would they call, go about uh, you know asking you for consultation or getting you to train? I know EMDR. They contact EMDR, and you're working for them. Right. So a great way to contact the Humanitarian Assistance Program or the Trauma Response Network if you want to get involved with the organization for whom I volunteer and go out is EMDRHAP. So that's www.emdrhap for Humanitarian Assistance Program.org. EMDRHAP.org. And you can just click on training and and ask about how to about, you know how to host a training or get involved in that training, and then if you would just like to send me an email message, anyone who'd be interested in that would probably be the best way to kind of start everything right. else rolling. Sure. And my email address is l l u v as in Victor i a three five seven at gmail dot com. So I'm, I love rain, so that's why my email address has you or you can tell I was educated by Argentinians. Juvia instead of Juvia, L-L-U-V-I-A-357 at gmail.com. And I'd be glad to respond to anything you might ask about. I can connect you with other people as well. That's excellent, Randy. Thanks so much for sharing that. And um, yeah, I just it's been a great time hanging out with you and talking today. And I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, coming back in the future and Absolutely. hanging out, maybe uh, doing another podcast at some point. Um, Absolutely. And let's see. So I think that about wraps up our show. And you, you found out what how you can get a hold of Randy. So I uh, just wanted to say thanks for listening. And Randy, if you want to say anything else to the listeners. Good luck to all of you out there. And I hope that you have someone in your life, including yourself, appreciating all the beautiful stuff you do in the world. All right. Thanks, Randy. Thank you. everybody for listening to The Intentional Clinician. This is Paul Krauss, your host, and I really hope you got a lot out of that episode. 
I had a wonderful time recording it and learned a lot from Randy. He is a fantastic person, kind and wise man, and just bursting with knowledge and very centered. Um, I really am glad he's training a lot of people. So if you ever get a chance to do the EMDR, Humanitarian Assistance Program training, and Randy is teaching, you have a real treat. And if you're in Maricopa County, Randy does train for the large behavioral health organization that's even larger than the one I was working for that kind of oversees things. So if you can get my drift, you might be able to find out where Randy's teaching and come to one of his classes or just email him and see if he's and you can connect in some way. Thanks so much again for listening and supporting this podcast. Um, Thank you for rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends. This podcast actually shares the name of a training I created called The Intentional Clinician. I don't have a webpage or anything really for it yet, but I've presented it now three or four times. Um, This is my second time for a large behavioral health organization in Maricopa County. In Phoenix, Arizona, I presented last week when I, uh, a few days after I recorded with Randy, and it's a five-hour training, and I did it through the organization so that the continuing education units will be approved by the state for licensure, and the curriculum was approved um, through them as well, and it's really fun interactive training. I have multiple exercises, probably about five to eight, depending on the the group I'm training, and then those are all interactive, introspective uh, about becoming an intentional clinician, and also different things you can use with your clients as well. And then there's some also some lecture and some story components as well. And I'm really working on it and trying to refine it and make it even better for next time I present it in Phoenix, but if you would like me to present this in your town, just Uh, give me a phone call, 616-365-5530, or give me an email. You can find me on the web at paulkrauscounseling.com and let me know, and I'd be love to come present to your clinicians. I'm actually thinking about making it six hours instead of five because I ran out of time last week with all the material and stories I wanted to present and the interactive activities. So that's the news there. As you might know, I am a counselor living in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I work at a place called Health for Life Grand Rapids that has multiple other counselors, all with their own specialties, a clinical hypnotherapist also, and a naturopathic doctor who is giving education in Michigan as they are licensed in the state of Arizona and do some work there as well. And right now, I'm just trying to get the news out there about all these subjects, and obviously this podcast is just a volunteer project I'm doing, but I love doing it, and I'm really hoping to do more of this and spreading good ideas to help people wherever they are at, whether they're clinicians or people that are not clinicians or whatever they're doing. I hope that this can help them heal or feel like they're getting some good information or maybe get some better knowledge. But here we are. We do have to do a disclaimer. Welcome to the disclaimer. I'm going to try to do this in the style of an Ericksonian. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss, and while these are based upon the literature he has read and the experience in the field, and that same goes for Randy Webb, they should not be viewed as the definitive opinion on the subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you are in a crisis, please dial 911 right now, or the National Suicide Prevention Line at 1-800-273-8255. Remember, if you are in need of counseling... 
please find a local counselor who is licensed in psychotherapy and, in my opinion, is up on the newest and latest research, including interpersonal neurobiology, trauma-informed care, and is learning to work with the whole person and the nervous system, and also happens to be relatable and non-judgmental. That's my opinion, but if you need somebody, get to somebody soon. Thanks so much for listening, and I look forward to uh, meeting with you again on this podcast. Randy, tu comida favorito. Yo diría que, bueno, primero que nada, yo quisiera tener un poco de bacalao. A mí me encanta bacalao, especialmente con una salsa de tomate, mm. uh, quizás algunas papas con queso, eh, ¿qué más? A veces no como mucha carne, pero a veces prefiero un poco de, quizás pasta inclusive, un eh, cierto arroz. Posiblemente, a mí me encanta todo lo que sea, frijol, además... Y quizás un té, un mate o un té, quizás un té... Bueno, no debería tomar té con azúcar, pero a mí me encanta el té con azúcar. Pero oh. sí, más que nada, no, esa cosa sería una, una comida ideal, casi. Ah, muy bien. Bueno, gracias. Sí, yo es muy hambre. Ah, bueno. Sí. Sí, yo tengo... Bueno, ahora sí tengo mucha hambre en este momento, ¿no? Sí, definitivamente. Sí, sería una comida casi ideal. A mí me encantaría en cualquier momento. Gracias, Randy. A usted, Paul. Un placer. <laughs> okay, so one of the things I've been doing is... Um... We have some really good ideas. We have all kinds of things we can kick around today. Really anticipating some good ideas getting out there comparing things, kind of analyzing things a little bit, but getting the word out as to what might be really helpful for people. It's really, I think, what we're all about, isn't it? We really want to make things be optimal for people, if at all possible. Give them some good stuff they can use. <laughs>